This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, friends. Welcome to the program. Dr. Matt here, your coach, your guide on the side, along with Jeff and Terry. Jeff is back Hey-o. for a few days. Then he's got to get back to his court-appointed uh, opportunities <laughs> in the uh, Utah penal system. It's the restraining yeah. order. Thank you for letting me borrow your uh, neon vest, by the way. That was nice. I mean, it's amazing. You never get hit when you wear that. Right. Yeah. yeah. That's why. Where did you get that, by the way? I got it from a friend. Okay. <laughs> yeah. A friend in the pokey. Hey, so much to talk about. Where to begin? By the way, it's BYU. Uh, it's Women's Conference. Is that what they call uh, I was going to say Education Week. It's Women's Conference where, you know, 15,000 to 20,000 women gather on BYU campus. At one talk. time. All at one time. It's crazy. There's All so much estrogen. All fighting for 13,000 parking places. And a lot of them were here earlier than we were. Yeah. Parking illegally. Yeah. Well, that's that's the bigger issue is when we go to leave later today, there's someone like hanging out of their car window. Are, are you leaving? No, I'm just yeah. can I park my car. Yeah, but you can't park here. Yeah, yeah. It's only employees. Sorry. It's it's a fun time here on BYU campus. Um, and by the way, a f- super fun time back in Washington D.C. President Trump, um, by the way, got rid of his attorney Cobb, Ty Cobb, the great mm, baseball. Depending player. on which, well, he's related. He says. Oh, is he? He says there's some relation between Ty Cobb and him, and that's why he has that name. I was going to say, isn't Ty Cobb, he's deceased, right? Oh, yeah. Long, yeah. long, long, long time ago. And, and this guy has a fantastic mustache. Oh, yeah. And eyebrows to match. And a great salad, too. Cobb. Oh, yeah. The Ty Cobb salad. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's uh, going crazy back in D.C. Apparently, um, uh, with that attorney leaving, President Clinton's... Impeachment attorney stepping in. Flood, his last name is. Really? Flood. So we went from a cob to a flood. To a flood, yes. Like Noah had a great one of those. Um, Emmett Flood. Emmett Flood. Yeah. Cool. Fun name. Not Fudd. No, that's Elmer. Yeah. The other guy. Flood. <laughs> the pig without pants. The, <laughs> the pantsless pig. Um, okay. A lot of fun there. So we've got new Trump headlines. Yeah. Uh, Rudy Giuliani's out there working the circuit. Um, and may have gotten his client in trouble, maybe. Yeah, he also said like he fired Comey, and basically he said he fired him because of the Russia situation, which yeah. is what he told NBC News. Which, uh, yeah. Now they're saying like he, you know, I don't know. So my question: Do you think Rudy Giuliani had like permission to do what he did last night? Do you um, think? That, do you think Trump was like, yeah, go talk about all? Well, that. like many pundits believe, it was part of a bigger distraction like mm-hmm. let, like apparently like there's certain facts you just want to get out on the table because you don't want them to come out later and so right. the fact that Cohen who was uh you know raided by FBI agents and was the attorney of Trump there was a search warrant a raid sounds like they kicked yeah. the door in there's a search warrant on three locations and yeah. they took everything it was coordinated um but apparently Cohen is now um he's he he paid apparently allegedly one hundred thirty thousand dollars to this stormy Daniels lady. Mm-hmm. Well, now Rudy basically confirmed that President Trump had reimbursed Cohen right. about one hundred thirty thousand dollars, even though President Trump had said he had heard nothing. It was about it him. was a retainer. It was yeah paid over so, several months. So it's now 
It's just a transaction. Rudy business. Giuliani's out there, maybe making trouble for the president. Uh, let's get to the headlines, Terry. What else so, is going on? As we talked about, Ty Cobb, the lawyer, uh, Trump's lawyer, is as he says, retiring at the end of the month. How convenient. That's, I don't, I don't I know. Would, that's... I don't know if he's been fired or if it's retirement, but he's hiring Emmett Flood, who okay. was the impeachment lawyer for Bill Clinton. He also worked in the Bush White House, I believe, mm-hmm. as counsel. So, uh, very, very um, experienced lawyers yeah. coming in now. Uh, his legal team apparently they don't have the security clearance to talk to Mueller. Oh, right. So to sit in the room with Donald Trump during a deposition oh, with boy. Mueller, his See. lawyers don't have the clearance. The only one on his team that had security clearance was Ty Cobb. Oh, wow. He's so retiring. So how do you represent someone if you can't? There's a process to get clearance. They've it's going to take a little clear. time. Seems so. like Rudy Giuliani would have had some of this clearance before. But he left government. Yeah. And so Giuliani, uh, they haven't been on the job long enough to get cleared themselves. None of them, as this according to Bloomberg News, whether they even sought such a clearance. Yeah. Because maybe they don't need the clearance in the, 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 uh, the role that they were playing now. They might need that, so Trump has some representation. Oh, wow. uh, what they're saying is that the uh, the new addition to the legal team, uh, Flood is more adversarial in his tone okay. to legal oh, approach, good. where Ty Cobb was more like, let's cooperate yeah. Yeah, with let's, Mueller. Let's get together on this. Maybe Flood is going to be more of adversarial, so there's going to be a... A uh, head-on collision between Mueller and Flood. Oh boy! Ooh, a Mueller flood. A Mueller flood. It's one of the. It's like a flash <laughs> flood. Steve Bannon told the Washington Post that Ty Cobb was a mistake, totally incompetent, and over his head. Oh, good to have Steve back in the news. But wonderful mustache. Yeah, he didn't say handlebar. That. Handlebar. Three American nationals who have been held in North Korean custody for more than a year may be about to be released. CNN reports. North Korean authorities made the decision to release the three men two months ago, and North Korea's foreign minister is the one who pitched the idea while visiting Sweden in March, a unidentified official told CNN. One of the prisoners has been in North Korean detention on espionage charges since 2015, while the other two were arrested last spring for allegedly carrying out, quote, hostile acts. Wow, these are these are the three hostages that yeah. we keep hearing about again. President Obama couldn't get these guys released. Apparently not. President Trump. He may win a Nobel Peace Prize for this. At least he's been mm. nominated. Yeah, right, Jeff? I kind of feel he was nominated because a lot of people are like, why did Obama win the award yeah. when we were actively bombing countries? Well, some call it bombing. Some call it a peaceful resistance. It was really odd. Apparently the reaction in the White House when Obama was there and they got the, the announcement that he was uh, nominated and probably when he's going to win the Nobel, he's like, seriously? Now, how am I going to live this down? Yeah. Oh, that's, <laughs> so I think much it's political just, weight. It's just called arms allocation. Yeah, we're just reallocating our arms. Yeah. <laughs> we're dropping them over here. A C-130 military transport plane belonging to the Puerto Rican National Guard crashed Wednesday night after oh, no. takeoff from Savannah Hilton Head International Airport in Georgia, and authorities believe all nine crew members are deceased. The nearly 60-year-old plane was being retired and was on its way to Arizona. When the incident occurred, they have that airplane yeah, uh, kind graveyard. of graveyard they yeah. have there. He's going to retire oh, it there. No. It crashed on a busy highway, and despite coming close to two bystanders on the ground, it didn't hit any people or vehicles. Uh, one witness is 
watched the airplane and could see that they were really actively trying to avoid the highway as they were coming down Uh, and all this. The Associated Press is reporting only the tail section of the plane was intact when the debris field of 600 feet in diameter. There's video from security cameras around watching it just take a left bank Uh, and right into the ground. So. Not a. Uh, they're they're investigating, trying to figure out what happened because this airplane's very reliable. Yeah. What happened? They're not. By the sure. way, I've been not to brag, but mm. I've been to the plant that makes these planes. Yeah. And they're amazing, and they're used all the time for sixty years. Yeah. I mean, who uses a plane as much as they use these planes, and then it crashes? Sad. Right. Finally, a uh, Vermont Vermont man is facing charges that he used a shotgun to silence a smoke detector in the kitchen of his apartment. <laughs> Police say two shots fired Monday afternoon from the 20-gauge shotgun owned by 68-year-old Leroy Mason hit the adjoining wall of an occupied apartment. Police say uh. Mason was compl- he had complained about the frequent false alarms from his smoke detector and that he was upset fire crews wouldn't relocate it, so he took it upon himself to relocate the smoke detector and oh, shot it yeah, he did. with the shotgun. Wow. There were no injuries. And he relocated it, ex- it into the neighbor's apartment. Except for the shot, the ox- the uh, smoke detector, obviously. But you know that feeling when all you hear is that beep, that chirp that says oh, yeah. it's time to change the battery. Yeah. Beep in the middle of the night. Ooh. Uh, I usually go take the battery out. Well, what if we have one that is like in this vaulted ceiling that uh, you can't get to? Well, then you need to have a crane in the closet no, to get yourself shotgun. up there. We just get a shotgun. Just I've got something it. like that. I've got an 11-month-old beeper, mm. basically. Oh, cute. Middle of the night. Little beeper. It's not as cute as a beep, though. No. It's usually like a high-pitched scream. And can the mother yeah. of the beeper, does the mother of the beeper handle the beeper better than the father of the beeper? Absolutely. They always do. Sometimes I don't even know it's beeping. <laughs> What? The kid woke up? What happened? <laughs> I did not even hear that cute little child of ours. That's so strange. Oh, well. See, there's so much to learn as a parent, right? Up next, we're going to be talking about ways that you can teach your kids about work without adding more work to your life. Interesting stuff up next. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you uh, love stronger and live longer. Work and family responsibilities is a juggling act that can be very stressful for parents. How do you spend more time with your children but still finish all of your work obligations? Here to speak with us today is Sabina Nawaz, a world-renowned CEO and leadership coach, and uh, also a a speaker, a writer, an author. And uh, we appreciate your time, Sabina. Thank you so much for being with us. Matt, it's great to be with you. Thank you for having me. You bet. This is... um, it's such a big deal as a parent because you out, you're out, you're making a living, you're doing what you can to be a success and to you know to to make a make some headway um, financially. Meanwhile, you got kids back at home. You're starting to feel this weird guilt. How can I spend more time? I've got a lot to teach them, but oh, I don't have time to do it. Um, do you see that? Do you see all of your CEOs, the leaders that you coach and work with, are they struggling with balancing work and family? Absolutely. It is one of the most common questions that gets asked at panels of executives when uh, when they're in conferences, for example, and they struggle with this a lot. I'll tell you a story. One of the clients I work with 
holds a dinner the day before they have a leadership seminar that I teach them. Yeah. And at the dinner, the executive who sponsors it goes around the table and asks people as an icebreaker to say, what's one thing you're proud of in the past six months? And what's one thing that you regret? The number one regret, Matt, any guesses what they come up with? Uh, number one regret, not, you know, not being home enough. Exactly. Not spending enough time outside of work with their families. And more often than not, the ones who have younger children tend to say this. Mm. This is the most common regret. It comes up every single time we have that dinner, no matter the group, over and over again. Mm. Well, so and absolutely, it, it's a big struggle. Well, you and you want, I mean, it's hard because you're working and you want to teach, you know, skills and be a good father or a good mother and um, but it takes time. It takes energy. So you, I know you've, you've got kids, you've figured some of this out and, and, and got, you've got some great ideas for us. How do we make time to be with our kids and also still get everything done? Matt, I'll have to correct you first for a moment. I really don't have it figured out, especially if you ask my 15 year old, yeah. I've got two oh, teenagers yeah. in the house. Don't trust <laughs> so. the teenager though. They, they're they just saying that. Maybe I should put him on air. Yeah, yeah that's right. <laughs> tell you. How, yes, so your question is, how do, how do how we How do work? you do it? Yeah. If I had one silver bullet answer, I'll be, I'd be sipping uh, an umbrella drink on a beach and not working anymore. Right. I think that some of it goes back to, for me, it, I've, I've been thinking deeply about this topic for a long time, ever since I left my job at Microsoft. When I decided to leave, I was seven months pregnant with my second child. I already had a two-year-old. My husband, I have the fortune, good fortune, stays home with the kids. So it wasn't a matter of balancing the logistics, but I realized that I was missing out. Mm. And even though I had a blank check from the CEO of the company when I left, I really wanted to not have that regret that I now hear many of my clients express. I can't say that I don't fully have that regret. I struggle with it myself. Yeah. But the way I've arrived at it is really, in many ways, boils down to multitasking, which is how do we involve our kids in the work that we do? That's a great idea. Like, why not, right? You've got to do the work anyway. Yes. And um, some of the things you learn as a, as an employee, as somebody that's out doing work, it's it's valuable lessons for your kids. So why not involve them? It is. Exactly. It is. And what I also, a light bulb went on for me when I coached, as I started coaching, and I, I'd coached quite a few people by then, probably close to 100, and noticed some patterns. One of the patterns I noticed that people I was coaching in their 40s, their 50s, was where they got really stuck with one, they got attached to a particular meaning. I know you're about living longer and loving stronger, and I don't see acts of leadership and people in positions of executive leadership doing anything different. They're extending their shelf life, the shelf life of their organizations, and loving stronger, loving what they do, loving the people they work with, loving their customers, and so on. And they, the pressures of the job sometimes take them away from that purpose. 
it disconnects them. The higher up they go, they get more and more disconnected. And they get stuck in a particular story they tell themselves, especially when they get into conflict. Mm. That person is out to get me, or that person doesn't know what they're talking about. And, and then the, the choices they make are pretty destructive. By the time they come to me, we have to do a lot of unwinding and a lot of deprogramming, if you will. So as I started thinking about that, I thought, okay, so how do I get my kids started on this much earlier in life? Mm-hmm. And, and that's how we came up with this, with this game of uh, multiple meanings. Yeah, talk about that. That is, this is such a great way to help people realize to not jump to conclusions. Exactly, exactly. Not just not jump to conclusions and therefore open up, expand the range of options that we can choose to act with, but also increase our empathy for somebody else. They might be doing something for some reasons that have nothing to do with me. And just last night, I was, I was actually quizzing my son, saying, hey, I'm going to be on the radio with Dr. Matt Townsend. What suggestions do you have for me? What have you learned yeah. about work from what I've done? And my younger son said, you know, Mom, whenever I'm in this mode of mind reading, where I'm trying to read somebody else's mind and ascribe meanings to them, I think about multiple meanings and I start doing that. So how it goes is, we usually do this on the car ride on the way to school. We pick something, somebody that we observe as we're driving. It could be a driver in a car on the way, uh, in the lane across from us on the bridge. And we'll say, well, what meanings can we make of this person? Hmm. Obviously knowing that all the meanings we make may have nothing to do with the reality that she is experiencing. And one, one of us might say, gosh, she seems to have a frowny face. And so maybe she has just had a fight with her son at home and is going to work with a frowny face. And someone else will say, actually, I didn't see a frowny face. I saw a really thoughtful look on her face. And she must have a presentation to her boss today. And so she's going, going to work with her head in the presentation. Mm. Someone else might say, maybe she got pulled over right before she crossed the bridge and got a ticket. Mm. So you can see in the moment, we are starting to expand the ways in which we see something. And you're making it up, but we're all making it up anyway, right? We are all making it up all the time. And the way we make things up are are habitual in a lot of ways. We have some default ways of waking things up. So patterns, these patterns get imprinted early on in our lives, and then they get activated as pressures rise. Yeah. Well, and it, I guess what you're teaching your kids is that in the end, um, we can always expand meaning by just figuring out other ways to look at any situation. And um, by the way, a great work tool, but an, an awesome parenting tool. Because, And by the way, to have your kids learn it at 15 or younger – you've set them up for a pretty effective life at being able to see things from different perspectives. (laughs) Thank you. Much as I love, love, love my job, I I thought, how can I get my kids to not have this conversation with their coaches when they become CEOs or whatever? Right. Right. um, And by the way, another thing that you brought up and and have mentioned in um, some of your writings are, is this idea that Sitting down and just having the discussion with your family about your time management is a way to teach them time management. Yes, 
Yes, absolutely. It's not just having the discussion, but actually involving them in the time management. My older son and I, ever since he was eight years old, we would sit down because he, he started complaining. He said, Mom, I don't see you enough. And, and I, I have to admit, I am a workaholic. <laughs> so yeah. I'd say, Mom, I don't see you enough. And I, I want you to do this or that with me. And I'd say, oh, but I've got this other thing to do. And I always had this other thing to do. And so we came upon this idea of why don't we sit down and block some time on the calendar together that becomes dedicated time. So we would block out time six months in advance because obviously the next week was always booked up. Right. And I set this expectation. I said, all right, we're going to block out about two days worth of time every week. And I will assume that half of that will go away as, as the calendar gets closer. So I set that expectation up front. And it was wonderful because the half that went away still went away in ways that I hadn't anticipated. I could deal with the unexpected. I could take on a bigger project versus the day-to-day stuff that, that had to be done. Mm. That is so <laughs> great, yeah. And and your child was a part of it, so uh, exactly. he, he felt more empowered. Exactly. And, and every once in a while, we'd forget to do it, and he'd go, Mom, I think it's time for me to sit down with you and block out your calendar. <laughs> <laughs> That's such a great thing. You even involve him in your work. I mean, helping him... Uh, read quotes, and you you read a lot of books, and you ca- capture a lot of quotes in those books that you want to use for your speeches. And talk about how you involve your kids in doing your work with you. <laughs> that started almost exactly a year ago today, Matt, because I'm doing a lot of research in preparation for writing my own book. And so I read 50 books last year on le- topics related to leadership. As I was reading them, because I was doing this for research and I knew the things I was extracting from these books needed to make it into my book proposal, I had to take notes. And I started getting overwhelmed quite quickly. I've got to read the books, take the notes, and do all the rest of my stuff. So first I paid my assistant and I said, hey, please take notes from the passages I've marked down. And then I thought, wait a minute, why not my kids? Mm. It's turned out it was such a serendipitous thing. It's turned out to be a wonderful way to involve them. They, they get money, so they're motivated to do it. Right. Obviously, there are many ways to do this without motivating them through money. But our dinner table conversations have become so much richer. We, I remember the first book uh, my younger son transcribed was called The Culture Map. And at the dinner table... He started talking about, okay, so mom, you grew up in India, and and therefore in the culture map, how you deal with conflict would have been here. Mm. We live in North America, and therefore it would be our our point in the map would be here. How did that work out when you first came in 1986 to the United States? So it was a very, very interesting conversation that took me by surprise because I thought here he was just doing a rote job, but actually absorbing stuff. And so since then, we've talked about a whole range of leadership topics uh, through doing that. But what, we, what is even more interesting, because of course he said, I'm reading books, they said, I'm reading books that I would never check out in the library. Right. However, something even more interesting has come out of that is work ethic, learning about work ethic. One of the books that my older son transcribed, he was in a hurry to go to his Model UN offsite. 
and it wasn't the best quality job he had done. And I pointed that out to him. When he came back from his offsite, he said, Mom, I'm going to give you back $5 from what you paid me because it wasn't to the quality that you expected. Yeah, Clearly, it, that is... I wasn't pressuring him about the money. Yeah, right. But he's but he's he, learning. I mean, and learning to negotiate, too. Learning to negotiate, learning to make the client happy and do what's right for the client. Mm. Again, we're speaking with Sabina Nawaz, who is a global CEO coach, a leadership keynote speaker, a writer, and uh, who is doing has been working in over 26 different countries. She advises C-level executives in Fortune 500 companies, coaches them on how to be more effective leaders. And Sabina, um, if as we as we're kind of wrapping this up, talk about what you know. If there's one thing that each of us could do as parents. To be able to, I guess, I mean, because this is this is a multiple faceted issue where we want our kids to learn, we want to be their teachers, we want to be there for them, and the realities of life are that we've also got to work. What what's the one thing that we could all do today that you that you sense would make a difference in in creating that bridge between family life and work life? To me, it boils down to one word, Matt, which is connect. And that word has multiple meanings, speaking of multiple meanings. It's about connecting to your own purpose, your own work, and then connecting work to your children and, and as a way of connecting with them. Hmm. So being transparent about what you're working on, what are the challenges, not just what's wonderful about it, in, of course, appropriate, bounded ways for their age, and then involving them in it, and then discussing it, having the meta discussion, debriefing that. So these are all part of that connection about forming those relationships. Leadership is about courageously facing your relationships, connecting to your purpose. And it's no different the conversations you have at the boardroom table the con- than the conversations you have at the family table, which are also about connection. So how about we connect the two since our lives are not – we don't check in, check out – we don't check our work at the door when we walk into that dining room table. So powerful. Sabina, great work. Thank you so much for your time and your um, your insights. Sabina Nawaz, you can go find out more about her work and her coaching at her website, sabinanawaz.com, sabinanawaz.com. And um, just, boy, uh, leadership is about courageously addressing and, and impacting your relationships. Leadership 101, right? Leaders need followers. They need people that are willing to follow them. And relationships are the way that uh, we grow the ability to have people want to follow us. We'll continue the journey to a little Coach's Corner up next. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. I'm ready to go in, Coach. Just give me a chance. Because life doesn't come with a handbook, you need a coach. Here's Dr. Matt and his coaching corner. Play ball! Welcome back. Um, as we're all out there doing what we can to raise our children, our goal would be that they could be independent of us, right? That that finally, you know, when they go away to college, that they can do it and they can be independent. And uh, eventually we could circle back and create a really interdependent relationship with them where we are independent, they are independent, and we can go create something really powerful and wonderful together. The assumption is, though, that that takes place 
And so one of the things I wanted to talk about in this Coach's Corner are some ways that we can help our children become more independent and and raise them on to a level of independence. Now, um, one reason I bring this up is because I think we think they'll they'll do it, you know, just by the progression and maturity of life, that by the time they finally graduate from high school, they will be independent, right? Or when they get married, you know, they'll be independent. But it reminds me of um, a Steve Carell, Michael Scott scene in The Office where he is in financial trouble. He has a lot of debt and somebody, Creed, um, from the show suggests that he go and uh, and basically declare bankruptcy. And because he doesn't have a clue, Michael Scott doesn't, this character, he uh, he walks out into the, the office where everyone is standing and he yells at the top of his lungs in declaration, by the way, I declare bankruptcy. He declares his bankruptcy. And everyone is – they're basically, you know, Michael, it's going to – you can't just declare it. You you, you got to actually – you got to file the legal papers and you've got to do all of that. Here's, here's a call. I declare bankruptcy! <laughs> well done, Michael. Now you have declared bankruptcy. It's not enough for our child to just scream at the top of their lungs, I'm mature or I'm independent enough. You know, at some point they've got to show it. And so um, there are some things we should be doing, I think, as parents to to help our children and to facilitate their independence. And I teach there's a lot of ways our kids have got to be independent, right? We want them to be whole children, healthy children. So we want them spiritually independent, socially independent, emotionally independent, intellectually independent. We want them financially independent. We want them to be able to be free to make real decisions on their own. And so let me just uh, go through some of these forms of independence, and we can all look at our own children and say, okay, maybe I need to zoom in on this one a little bit. One of the ways I talk about it is, and this would be kind of the center of the onion, is we've got to have our kids on a level of spiritual independence, I call it. Are they able to connect on their own to their deeper meaning, their deeper purpose, their higher power in life? Do they have a relationship with a higher power? If it's God, if it's, uh, you know, whatever your belief system is, we have got to be connected to that higher power in our life, especially in how that higher power influences what our purpose in life is really about. Do your kids have a, a, a sense in their life that their their life means something, that it, they have a purpose here, that they have a very personal you know, mission that they are sent here to accomplish while they're here on this earth? Do they sense that? Are they pretty closely connected to what they're passionate about? Have you started with these teenagers to help them identify what their passions are, what their interests are? Do they, have, you, have you helped them figure out what their strengths are? What is it about their character that this world needs? Do they recognize that they are here as an agent, that they're here to make choices, that, that their destiny is not set, that they get to, to lead it and push? These are all very kind of spiritually grounded ideas, and it doesn't, I guess, necessarily mean you have to be religious, but spiritually connected for sure. And uh, if you're so inclined, as I am, to, to uh, you know, be religious, then go be religious but use these ideas to make sure that they understand what right and wrong is, that they have a methodology in their brain 
to go figure out what is true. That way, when life throws them a curveball, they can run it through their spirituality and see if they can't make something out of it. Another way that they could be spiritually independent or to be independent is, is what I call emotional independence. Can they keep their cool and help others keep theirs? Do they understand their emotions? Do they really truly get how they work emotionally? Do they know where they're strong emotionally? Do they know where their emotional weaknesses are? Do they have uh, things they're battling, issues like anxiety or depression? Do they have a hard time focusing? It's, there's a lot of little things in our lives that, that make it hard for us emotionally. Have we lived a history with our family that may have impacted us negatively emotionally? Do we have um, some interesting uh, issues where we, we can't trust other people, where we, can't, where we don't have a, a view or a sense of ourselves that's healthy? Do we have any addictions that our emotions are keeping us stuck to? Do we have self-control? And these are things we want to teach our kids, right? So that they can, they can feel the same emotions as everyone else, but it doesn't mean we're going to act on the emotions. Do your kids know how to cool themselves down emotionally when they're getting heated up? Do they know how to call a timeout on their life and, and walk away for a bit and come back and return and re-engage? Do they know how to manage their anger? Do they know how to be self-aware? Basic emotionally independent skill sets. So we have spiritual skill sets. We have emotional skill sets. Uh, the, the third one we'll talk about uh, this break is, is simply about financial. Do they have the ability to earn? Do they have the skills, the tools they need? Can they actually get a job? Are they set up to go to college and, or a trade school and get the skills they need to get out there and, and be independent? Because if they're not financially independent, then they might have to always live with you, right? And it doesn't mean they have to be a millionaire. It doesn't mean they, they have to you know, even go to college. But they need to be somewhat geared to go be able to make a living. Not just a living. Do they know how to manage their emotion? Do they understand debt? Do they understand credit? Do they understand how some of the basic financial um, issues of the world will go? Then it's not enough to just be spiritually independent and to be emotionally independent are you financially independent as well? Basic ideas. Think about your kids. How are they doing? And what can you do today to help them in one of those areas, to help them be more spiritually independent, more emotionally independent, more financially independent? By the way, if you hand them more money, or if you hand them just your spirituality, or if you hand them just your emotional help every time they need it, you might not actually be helping them be independent. You may actually help them be spiritually, emotionally, or financially dependent. And the more we do that as parents, the less uh, independent they'll ever get. So let's, uh, let's start looking at it. Just some basic guides, some help, some help and some insight into how we can grow more independent kids. This is the Matt Townsend Show, doing what we can on the program to help you and your family live longer, love stronger, and lead healthier lives. These days, there are a few structured career pathways. People seeking employment require a diversity of skills, including creativity, versatility, initiative, 
the ability to spot opportunities and innovation. Flexibility is also required because the 40-year career and retirement package is no longer the norm. So how does one raise successful kids uh, that can handle such an unstable future. Dr. Richard Wren joined us not long ago to talk about his book, Raising Can-Do Kids, Giving Children the Tools to Thrive in a Fast-Changing World. I began the interview by asking, what was the motivation for him writing this book? Well, Matt, we, it was sort of two streams. And as you mentioned, I wrote it with Jen Prosek, who's an entrepreneur. And, you know, we're coming at it from totally different angles, Jen being someone who's out in the business world, uh, who runs a company, who hires lots of young people. And for myself, being a developmental psychologist as a researcher, we both came to the same conclusion, and which is that, you know, all this obsession we have right now in trying to make sure kids are going to be successful is leading parents, uh, good-intentioned parents, to a lot of practices that really undermine kids' ability to be successful later in life. And, you know, what we found was, you know, thinking both about the, the current research, but also, you know, that perspective of when kids get out into the world beyond college, what are the skills that they're going to need to be successful? You a total mismatch with how kids are growing up today. And so we wanted to orient the book both with that long view of what, what it's going to mean to be successful later in life with, um, you know, what we call evidence-based practice, yeah. uh, dipping into the research, um, and thinking through how kids really develop socially, personally, cognitively, and especially in terms of those skills they're going to need, uh, what we all need now, but we think kids are going to just need more and more in the future. You call that, I guess, a resourcefulness factor. Is that right? That our children yeah. need to have resourcefulness, and um, we can either set up that resourcefulness as they're gro- growing up or we can actually hinder their ability to be resourceful. Yeah, you know, one of the ways we do this, Matt, and I talk to parents a lot in a, in a lot of capacities, which I enjoy doing. So, I, I, you know, I'm a parent, too, and we're all kind of dealing with this thing, and I think it's pervasive that no one knows what it's going to be like for, let's say, a five-year-old today, right? Right. What it's going to be like, what's the world going to be like when they're 25? You know, what we, what we are seeing is that, you know, how you used to think kids might be successful. You find a career, you go into it, uh, you work your way up, you know, a proverbial ladder, et cetera. You know, that's not how, how those kids are going to be growing up. We already see it in the workplace now, but kids might have not just multiple jobs across multiple, you know, companies or wherever context they work. They may have multiple professions, and those professions are going to pull on skills that we don't even know are going to exist yet. You know, if you just think about how technology has changed how we all work over even the last 10 years. Um, so there's this funny thing that happens. We get worried that, you know, the world's going to be more and more complicated and changing and all that. But the reaction is to be so nervous that we just try to make them successful right now. And, yeah. and, as opposed to saying, look, that's what the world's going to be like. Let's give them. They're going to have to be resourceful. They're going to have to be, you know, resilient. They're going to need some optimism. They're going to have to be innovative, problem-solving, and creative. And, and there's going to be a lot of ways they're going to have to collaborate. And, you know, those ways of collaborating with people get more complicated. Mm. Um, you know, it's, it's 
you can be working with people all over the world via, you know, multiple mechanisms uh, in addition to face-to-face. And it's like, so how do you prepare kids for the unknown? Uh, give them all those skills that help you take on the unknown. Yeah, and it's I, like as principals, they'll apply – in everything they do, whether – I mean even with the changing future, you know, innovation and your ability to innovate with others, that's not a principle that's going to die. You're going to always need to know how to innovate. You're going to always need to know how to problem solve and be creative and be optimistic. All of those are things that will only enhance life. Yeah, and I think, you know, the, the and for me talking to – to Jen and, and for her to reflect on what she hears, as, you know, out uh, sort of in the employment force, um, you know, all those skills have always been important, right? We've known that, and they've always been supportive of success. I think the the difference for, I think you see it already now, but in the future, I think the difference is going to be that they're going to be essential. They're going to yeah. be actually the epicenter of what you need to be successful. I think kids feel it. Now, you know, they they go to, you know, they work hard, they do all these activities, they go to a great school, and guess what? You go out in the world, and it's not like you've got this 40-year career waiting for you, Mm -hmm. right? It's like, what do I do now? You bet. And and how, how, you know, the job force can change uh, quickly. You know, positions can change in a day. No. I've, I've, I've I've seen that, for example, in journalism, how, you know, over the course of, of two years, how an editor's job might Change. morph, just depend trying to keep up with the world. You That's know, right. Print, print media, right, to online, and then how much do you include video, and how much do you include social media, and it's something that's not just this fixed thing. It's something they have to surf, you know, and, and I do a lot of blogging, and I've seen how that world has changed tremendously over just a few years. And I mean, where you can make a career blogging, you know, you, you used to yeah. have to be a reporter to make right. a career, but now you can build your own audience. You don't even need, you know, the big networks. You can just build your own blog. Yeah, that's, I mean, the, the future, it's such a strange place, isn't it? So having these dynamic skills, which have always mattered, um, but really being good at it. And, and But it's almost like it seems like, Richard, that as parents we have to, we have to let our kids do some growing up. And, and it's almost like we're so afraid of them failing that we don't allow any of these dynamic skills in. We just kind of ensure success. But that doesn't set them up for a good future. Yeah, and, and I think, Matt, the, the thing, and I'm sympathetic to, to parents, you know, because they're part of this bigger sort of culture. So the reaction has been, right, give your kid, in essence, more and more assets. What do we mean by assets? Right, a transcript, extracurriculars. Yeah. Right, right. just things that make you, you know, you think you're going to make you stand out. Try to get into what's defined as an elite college, and that's just a whole other conversation, right, about how that <laughs> has spun out of control. Right. With all the amazing schools we have in this country, you know, the one thing we shouldn't be worried about is that our kids aren't going to get a great education somewhere. There's phenomenal schools everywhere. But, you know, what, what I think the leap of faith, so I understand that from parents, you know, but I think the leap of faith has to come a couple places. One is to understand that that's, not going to give them really the skills. And, and secondly, you know, there's a lot of talk right now. We have to get parents to back off, leave their kids alone, etc. I don't think that's the 
case. I think we're talking about good parents, and there's plenty of ways for them to be involved, but to be involved differently and to be more supportive of how kids develop. And your role is actually, in my view, in our book, when we go through it, it actually argues for what I would say is a more involved role, but involved differently. Mm. So more involved, meaning less activities outside of the home, more time at home interacting with parents, but with parents doing things that I think come naturally to them, that they'll be reassured. You know, the real cutting-edge research is showing, we'll give your kids these skills. One concrete example, you know, unstructured play at home. You know, the old building blocks. Yeah. You know, all those kinds of things. You know, you can, you can, as a parent, you don't have to just put your kid alone in a room. You can be there, and we talked in the book of all these ways that the research is showing about how you can really promote problem solving. Because not that you know that's what you want every second of your moment with your child, mm-hmm. you know, doing, but it actually gives you tools to really relax and play, which in a way that I think would be you know fun for most parents. But the thing is, you have to realize, don't dismiss that. That's actually the gift. That's actually the time when you're. When you're letting them be creative and you're giving them a lot of, not telling them what to do, but like, what are you going to do next? Have them talk. And what are you trying to build? If something doesn't work. It's like, wow, how yeah. are you, gonna, you know, what are you going to do with that? And, you know, that interactive kind of thing, you don't necessarily see it at home. You don't see it in a transcript. But I'll tell you what, you put those kids in a laboratory with cognitive scientists and they're talking about these kids are acting like scientists, right? I mean, yeah. Toddlers are amazing with their skills, but we've we got to give them the time. And parents, you know, can really do it. They're, they've got the, the tools. And we and, want parents to be, in some sense, better involved. And not so. Not, it's not backing off. It's being more involved mm-hmm. in, in better proactive, supportive ways for their kids. That uh, is Richard Rand, um, author of the book Raising Can-Do Kids. Giving children the tools to thrive in the fast-changing world. Doing what we can on the program to give you the tools you need to live longer, love stronger, and lead a healthier life. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, friends. Happy days are here again. Dr. Matt here along with Terry and Jeff. Jeff is back from um, extended leave. <laughs> Mandatory. Mandatory. Extended leave. Yeah. How is the cleanup crew going? A little, you know, good, good, good. They're napping on the job a lot. Yeah, yeah. Man, I'm telling you, those highways look clean. By the way, I'm really getting to know a lot about your son. He's a terrific <laughs> kid. Yeah, he's his mother's boy. <laughs> oh, you're gonna blame it on your wife? Always the I wife. See. Hey, uh, so much to cover. I'm telling you, many people may have overlooked President Trump because of all of this collusion, the alleged collusion and all that. But no, 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 no. He decided to just, you know, change North Korea single-handedly. 
Every president has tried to do something with North Korea, but it took the Dennis, dawn. Dennis Rodman had a hand in this. Let's not forget his contributions. Wrong. Good point. He gave Kim Jong-un, well, he gave the sports minister of North Korea Trump's books. He has two of them, right? He gave them both books. Those books made it to Kim Jong-un, which then established the relationship. Wow. Wrong. That's why he sh- Rodman should be considered for a Nobel Peace Prize. Well, You're wrong. It would probably be uh, Trump and Rodman. A dual prize. A dual prize. That's that's the ticket they're running on in uh, the next election. They'd call it Trodman. (laughs) I'm feeling trod upon. Trodman. (laughs) Um, But Donald Trump's not just taking on North Korea and changing that. He may now even take on Iran. Mm. This is all part of the tangled web. Is that what it is? I'm telling you, again, it's the old – it's the old – Con, what do they call it? The shell game. Bait and switch. Yeah, it's the, the old, hey, sleight the, of hand. Hey, where's which one's got the which one's got the penny under it? Which one, huh? And he just keeps moving them around. The next thing you know, he's got your watch. There's always those plastic halves of wal- what was it? Walnut shells. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But they, were, I think, walnut shells are not plastic. Well, in the magic kit that you would always see, it they were plastic. Oh yeah, yeah. I just used to get the real ones. Hmm. Not to brag, but um. It's it's crazy. So the the weird thing about all of this is maybe by midterms, Donald President Donald Trump will have actually made the North Korean War completely stop, and we have a peace agreement, and Kim Jong Un is coming to the White House, and Iran will no longer be a nuclear threat either, and everything will be hunky dory, and then the Republicans win. So he's not taking credit for all this. Well, nobody's making some pretty big strides. And President Trump would never take credit where credit's not due. Really? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it's all good. So all of that is going on. uh, And uh, who better to help us kind of walk through all of the— Or stumble, whichever. Yeah, or stumble or just kind of get mired in it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, But Terry South. Terry, what's going on in the headlines? President Trump has all but decided to quit the Iran nuclear deal. White House officials have told Reuters, despite a warning from the U.N., that leaving a deal without replacement could lead to war. Reuters reported Thursday morning that two White House officials and a source familiar with the administration's internal debate say that uh, Trump will prepare to quit the deal signed in 2015, but hasn't yet made the final call. Okay. He's, yeah, he's going to quit the deal. He's going to figure it out. Last week's meeting between South Korean President Moon Jae-in and North Korean leader Kim Jong-un has had a radical effect on the people of South Korea, Bloomberg News reports. Just over a month ago, Gallup found that just 10% of South Koreans approved of Kim. But in a new poll by the Korean Research Center released Tuesday, 78% of respondents said they trusted the North Korean leader. Wow. So the 78% of South Koreans now trust the North Korean leader after he was seen on TV shaking their president's hand. Interesting. Moon is enthusiastically liked in South Korea, where he has an 86% approval rating. Respondents to the uh, Korean Research Center poll found a number of moments in the summit between the leaders impressive, including the pledge to uh, de-weaponize the Korean Peninsula in the way that they need to. 30% of respondents said Moon's decision to cross the border was the most impressive part. Nearly 90% of South Koreans said the summit was a productive step forward. There you go. So at least in country, people think it's a They're, it's a move. He's killing it. Positive, yeah. Well, I mean, Im- imagine how great it would feel in Korea to have this whole thing end. Yeah, you don't yeah. want to live under that fear that just next door they're going to do something. And, yeah. yeah, Mr. Un, tear down that wall. We have never feared Canada in the same way that they're no. fearing. So, 
Though I, I, I think we should. I think but we're, the maple oh, oh, tax we're, is expensive. It is. There is a there is a maple mafia up there that's illegally trading. Yeah. In syrup. Scary. Other news: the Arizona teacher strike has come to an end. Yes. The governor, uh, Arizona Governor Doug Ducey, signed a budget that today uh, approving more than $300 million in teacher pay raises. Lawmakers in the state worked through the night to pass the bill, bringing the week-long teacher walkout to an end. Thousands of teachers went on strike last week, which also means thousands of students left home because, you know, no school. Where are you going to put them? What are you going to do? So parents are like, all right. It's just, yeah. Get out of here. Oh, look at that. Tepid response, yes. As many as eight police officers were injured in an explosion Wednesday night when they responded to a very violent domestic call of a man holding his wife hostage in North Haven, Connecticut. The standoff, which was still going on early this morning, occurred when police were trying to coax him out of the house and really try to calm the situation down, a spokesperson said. Then things took a turn for the worse with an explosion. According to CNN, it appeared that a back building or a barn had been booby-trapped, which caused the blast. Wow. Jeez. Anybody hurt? Nine, what well, it says right there in the first line of the story, eight police officers was, injured. What, what was that mumbling? I don't know. I was just under my breath. I had a okay. thought there. <laughs> that happens a lot. <laughs> Finally, Milwaukee police officers have responded to 65 reports of people, including two postal workers, being hit by paintballs in the past five days throughout the city. The most recent incident occurred Monday afternoon when a man was walking with his caretaker and was hit in the face by a paintball during a drive-by style shooting on the city's east side. Do you remember when this happened about, was it like 15 years ago, there was a guy that was videotaping this and to apologize, he filmed had somebody film somebody shooting him with paintballs there hmm. that makes it better right yeah that makes but sense. he was just going by plowing people down on you know bus benches so oh, it's back yeah, yeah it's these back. things come full circle so uh, we are concerned that the frequency frequency of these and that during the nighttime hours somebody's going to mistake these paintball guns for real guns a police spokesperson said the trend uh, the police believe the paintball shooting stemmed from a posting on social media the trend began with an influential hip-hop artist who called for people to put down real guns and pick up paintball guns instead. Ugh. So far, no one has been seriously injured in Milwaukee, but paintballs can travel up to 300 feet per second. This is happening across the country. Uh, I believe different instances. Come someone on. There was a car accident, I believe. I'm not sure. So. Have either of you been hit by a paintball before? No. Yes. Not a pleasant sensation. No, no. Uh, by the way, this is how old I am. I was sitting in choir class. <clears throat> Choir class. In high school. Okay. And uh, having a great time. And all of a sudden I look over and the guy sitting next to me pulls out a gun, hmm. a paintball gun that looks like a real gun. And I'm like, what the? Well, except for the huge air canister on top. <laughs> well, The CO2? Yeah. No, it didn't, he didn't have a big air canister. Really? No, he didn't. So hmm. it was propelled by willpower. No. How do you know it was a paintball gun then? Because he shot my foot. Oh. And paint hmm. flew everywhere. Evidence. And my foot was throbbing. Well, and, and by the way, and the teacher's like, put that away. <laughs> oh, you kids. Like, no big deal. Yeah. Whereas today, but, it would lock the school oh, down. He would have been. Can you imagine? Yeah. At least you yeah. weren't shot in the neck and then had to go to work immediately after that. Yeah, the neck shot, by the way, and then the work shame of so, having a neck shot that looks inappropriate. I worked at In-N-Out Burger. 
This happened. And I had complete strangers. Were you married then? No. Coming up to me and saying, (laughs) ah, that's a pretty wicked hickey you got there. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You you weren't married. No. I was a high schooler. Oh, wow. That explains it. Um, So you never did get shot then? No, I did. And the frustrating thing was it was a blind shot. I had my brother in sight, in my line of sight, was about to shoot him. He sees me and makes this very ugly man noise as he's running away and blindly (laughs) shoots and gets me right in the neck. Wow. (laughs) Ugly man noise. Oh, yeah. I love the blind shot to the neck. Mm. And then have you ever seen that in slow motion? And then like that goiter, your goiter, just wugga, 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 wugga. <laughs> sad days, folks, sad days. Um, boy, so much to cover up. Next, we're going to be talking about unsafe thinking, how to be nimble and bold when you need it most. Interesting insights about uh, how to be more effective. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. Trying to stand out is something that many people attempt to do in their lives. They do it with clothes, cars, and accessories. But our next guest, author Jonah Sachs, uh, says the best way to stand out and be creative is to be an unsafe thinker. He joins us now to discuss his new book, Unsafe Thinking, How to Be Nimble and Bold When You Need It Most. Jonah, thank you so much for being with us today. Thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. I mean, we do. We try to stand out in a variety of ways. Um, I mean, just I mean, more color, more flash, more zing. But maybe, uh, according to you, it, it might all go back to our thinking. Yeah, this is just a world that's changing so quickly right now around us, and if we're just we're just challenged to change with it as as much as we possibly can. So our old patterns of thinking, our old ways of behaving. They become obsolete quickly, and I think the people who stand out as innovators, and I talked to more than 100 of them for this new book that I wrote, were people who are constantly challenging themselves and trying to think in counterintuitive ways, just questioning whether the way that everyone else was doing something actually made sense and finding some of those places to to squeeze in where no one else was looking. And it's interesting. Um, I mean, thinking is so personal, right? It, but there is kind of a group think, and there are certain thoughts that are appropriate, certain thoughts that are okay, um, and certain thoughts that you just don't ever mess with. They're like the, you know, they're the third rail. <laughs> they're going to kill you. Um, talk about that, because unsafe, I mean, just even the name of the book, Unsafe Ways or Unsafe Thinking, How to Be Nimble and Bold When You Need It Most, that very thought has got to scare a lot of people. Yeah, I think that's true, that we have these habitual patterns and and lanes that we feel safe in, and that just feels right to us. And, you know, that's great because we do want to keep a certain amount of security in our lives. We can't overload ourselves with risk. But if we're always staying in the lane of our comfort, that's where the real danger comes in. You know, if we're always behaving in the way that we did yesterday, always falling back on the rules of the past. And and you're right. You know, I, I actually have a chapter in the book about morality and about how, there's certain things that we don't want to question. There's certain things about being good human beings and being moral that we want to hold on to. But sometimes an overly strict sense of morality limits creative options. And one way I look at that is in terms of who, who we're willing to collaborate with and, and talk to. 
a good deal of psychological science shows that when we collaborate with people who don't agree with us, who don't necessarily share our values uh, and don't have the same life experience, we get a lot more creative. Mm. I think a lot of people fear that if they expose themselves to people who disagree with them or from another tribe, they're going to somehow lose their own moral footing. And uh, I really argue that that's not the case, that there's a lot of examples of people getting together and not being necessarily polluted by people on the other side, but collaborating with the enemy and, and just learning a lot more quickly from that while still holding on to a strong sense of who they are. So, yeah, sometimes, sometimes those third rails that we don't want to touch are actually places we should be looking. Oh, that's great. And um, talk about how we, we – we make the transition um, to to alter our thinking. It seems like some people are really good at just kind of breaking the mold and others are really good at staying within the boundary. How do I actually start to change or to drive my thinking to be a little less predictable, a little less safe? It's interesting. When I, when I first looked at this, I thought, yeah, there must be some people who just don't feel – uh, afraid of change and other people who, who you know, hide from it. And that's somewhat the case. There are people who are more willing to embrace difficulty. But one thing I found that was really unexpected is that innovators who break the rules are not just kind of these crazy ones who are unafraid to face you know, convention and, and stare it down, who are unafraid to take risks. They actually feel the same fear and anxiety that the rest of us do when trying to, to break the mold. Mm. But what they do, and this is something that's been both studied in a laboratory and also I heard many, many times from, from these innovators, uh, which is effective in the face of anxiety, is they reframe that anxiety. So when they feel afraid, they don't say, this, this is a good sign I need to run away, this is a good sign I need to stop. They tell themselves, fear is a sign that I'm on my creative edge. And if I move towards those things that make me afraid, I'm more likely to succeed. doesn't mean we should always do the crazy thing. But if we're in a habit of always moving away from that edge whenever we start to feel that fear, um, that's when we know we're in that sort of safe thinking cycle, which really can bring us down. If we're trying to get somewhere new in our careers, trying to build our business to the next level, trying to be better parents, you know, we, we need to be able to be adaptable. And that means stepping out of that comfort zone and moving towards anxiety from time to time. Um, although, again, we can't do that habitually with everything that we do. It's, it's exhausting. But sometimes we've got to find space for it. Boy, that's, that's fascinating. It really is, too. Uh, you use your feelings then and reframe them to be less about the fear and more about, oh, that's just telling you, you know, you're on the edge of some something big. You're on the edge of some breakthrough. What, um, what, what are some things, you also mentioned the words bold and nimble. And so how does, how does having kind of more uh, unsafe thinking help us be bold and nimble? So when we think about the word nimble, you know, let's start there. That's, that's having that kind of learning mindset where we're going to be constantly observing the world and constantly trying to make adjustments to it and not seeing every new piece of information that goes against how we thought it worked as a threat to our well-being and to our ego. I studied experts quite a bit for this book and found that people who consider themselves experts, and especially those who wind up on TV or on radio shows like I am right now, tend to attach their ego to a structure of what they know. And then they'll take in any new information as a threat to, that, to their ego, and they'll make terrible mistakes. Somebody uh, I spoke to studied uh, 200 experts over 20 years and got about 20,000 predictions from them and found that they were worse than dart-throwing monkeys at predicting the future because they were so caught up in this way of thinking and this thing that they identified with of, of a worldview. Yeah. And that makes us blind. So being nimble in many ways is trying to always, you know, always learn, always getting new information, but never identifying 
uh, our egos or identity as an expert in anything. Um, the, the identity that seems to work really well is to consider yourself a passionate explorer, and that seems to help us grow without getting fixed in a single mindset. In terms of being bold, um, you know, there's, there's just a great opportunity to question conventional wisdom. I spoke to some innovators who figured out that the best way to help the poorest people in the world is not to follow that old, uh, you know, teach a man to fish adage and tell them how to spend their money, but they started giving away $1,000 at a time to the poorest people in Kenya um, because they felt that perhaps the poorest people actually knew how to use the, mo- the money best. Mm. So far, they've raised more than $30 million um, and have been rated one of the top-rated charities in the world because they kind of look at something that was conventional thinking and um, used evidence to show why that was actually kind of cultural bias dressed up. I talked to... Um, a woman who helped CVS decide to stop selling tobacco. And, you know, that was an unquestioned kind of $2 billion business within her company. And she found a way to make an argument and find a path where they can make more money by not selling it. And that really just required stepping back from this sort of groupthink of the company and saying, you know, is there a new path forward? So in the book, I really look at lots of opportunities to question what no one else is questioning and then to find pathways forward through that. And, you know, like I said, that's kind of the counterintuitive thinking that can be so powerful. And it sounds like, too, you can do all of this without being um, a jerk, right? You you can do this without – this is it, – it just is a huge, it seems like, leadership tool to me to be able to, to be bold like that and to be nimble, to question, to not have your identity and your ego tied up in it and be this constant learner. I, it doesn't have to be an either-or, does it? No, not at all. You know, I, I looked at a lot of science that I found disturbing at first that said – you know, there's a good amount of correlation between people who are creative and people who are sociopaths. And I was <laughs> thinking, oh, God, this is not good this for me. Uh, it's great, not yeah. good for me. <laughs> yeah, I don't want to move in that direction. But, um, you know, it is true that, um, you know, sociopathic behavior is kind of rule-breaking behavior and can find new paths. But that often just leads to sort of self-destruction and you know, too much risk and too much alienation. Um, what does seem to work is, is what I call making people feel safe enough to get unsafe. And that means that in organizations where um, people are clearly valued as human beings, where everybody is being asked to speak up and information that's often hidden is being exposed because everyone has that turn to speak, where leaders are more humble and allow people um, latitude to play, where they reward um, good process rather than just results. So these sort of non-competitive environments where people feel very, very comfortable and safe together allows them to then get out into that arena and fight it out and fight over ideas and really take, take risks while trusting that they're cared for within their organizations. And um, you know, I spoke to the coach of the Golden State Warriors, Steve Kerr, who did exactly that. That's sort of the secret to his success. He realized these guys are under enormous pressure and he depressurized the locker room so that they could be more creative out on the court. So I think that you know, really thoughtful, humble, um, morally driven leaders uh, are really what we need in order to get our organizations to be more unsafe, which itself, I guess, is a little bit counterintuitive. That is – it's interesting um, to to make a locker room more fun, less pressure. And, I mean, the cool thing about uh, the Warriors, for example, is – you know, Steve Kerr was actually out for half a year. Was it last year? Um, because of his back, and yet the Warriors led themselves to a championship by self-leading. Yeah. Um, and, and that's probably just because of the depressurized culture. Yeah, I, I love that part of the story. Just, just can you imagine yourself as a leader? 
that the team does. You're such a good leader that the team doesn't need you. They don't need you. Um, that's you know that's a really rare um, you know that's, that's that would be that would be threatening I think to a lot of leaders just to think of it that way. But um, you know that's the kind of organization Steve Kerr created by bringing you know it's, it's called psychological safety and it's yeah. really a powerful tool for leadership. Well, and um, is that is that a learned thing, Jonah? I mean, is this book a way to teach us to do this? I mean, a lot of us, you know, a lot of times we're throwing out the idea that that's some people are just naturally good at creating that safety. But you were able to give us a big list, uh, and I'm sure you've got more of things leaders can do to actually depre- or to to create this psychological safety. Yeah, I mean, it wouldn't be much of a book if the uh, findings were just sort of some people are born with it. Some yeah, people you got aren't. it or you don't. <laughs> it wouldn't be so good. Uh, but no, there's been a lot of interesting research that shows that while intelligence, for instance, is probably an inborn trait that's hard to do much about, creativity is something that is heavily influenced by uh, life experience, by mindset, and by the environment we're in, the people that we surround ourselves with. So there is tons that we can do, um, and we can learn it. And you know, Steve Kerr is another one of those people um, who feels an enormous amount of anxiety. Um, he got to where he was with these ideas about how to run the team because he himself felt too afraid to take, take three-point shots in the NBA because he felt he didn't belong there, even though he was probably the best three-point shooter in the NBA at the time. So it was that sense of empathy in a way that, you know, if you can recognize your own desire for safe thinking, it makes you a more empathetic leader because you realize how, how other people are, you know, seeking safety in, in a world that feels a little bit out of control. Um, but then that also helps you lead them past that, that resistance. That's powerful. Um, talk about a little bit more about um, how you've seen this work in organizations. Uh, you gave us a great example of Steve Kerr. What are some other examples of, of leaders that have gone in and maybe upset an entire industry by their unsafe thinking? Yeah, well, you know, I mentioned, I mentioned Helena Folks at CVS who was, had an incredibly powerful story of really disrupting, disrupting that industry. Um, you know, I tell, I tell the story of the um, mayor of Bogota, Colombia in the 1990s who went in and had a sense in the city that was the murder capital of the world where citizens would regularly ignore the police because they were so corrupt, uh, where sort of everything had gone off the rails. And he was a philosopher and mathematician and realized, you know, that people just aren't going to be motivated by, by a government that they don't trust with just kind of the carrot and stick mentality of, you know, heavy punishment for crime and um, small improvements in the city to try to make, to kind of reward them for good behavior. So he did all of these really wild things, like he replaced all the traffic cops on the streets with mimes because nobody would follow the traffic cops. They didn't trust them. But when the mimes sort of mocked them and made fun of them for breaking the rules, they did feel that they wanted to behave better for their, for their fellow citizens. And that sort of sense of laughter and a little bit of shame for breaking the rules brought, brought uh, traffic accidents down by 70%. Um, he recognized that you, know, you can't just punish um, criminals into, uh, into compliance. And so he created a whole campaign where he realized that um, you know, murders were happening because there was so much violence in the families in, in Bogota at the time. And so he ran a national campaign to get families to 
punch and beat up balloons instead of hit each other, and he did it on TV himself. And, you know, through those kind of campaigns, murder rates came down in the city by 60%. He was just really in tuned not to what we tra- not to assuming traditionally what we think of as the levers we need to pull, but really questioning and finding new, new ways. Uh, his, his name was Mokis and was just a really great politician, one of, the, one of the most popular in Bogota's history for questioning the conventional and finding new pathways forward. So, you know, industries can be shaken up in, in so many different ways. Um, you know, Gmail was invented, for instance, as an act of corporate rule breaking, um, defying, defying a boss and saying, I'm going to build something that no one wants me to build. Uh, there's just story after story of how stepping off of the traditional path leads to, you know, the most unusual and interesting stories that everyone wants to tell, because when we get into the unsafe, that's where kind of that creative gold really is. Yeah. We're speaking with Jonah Sachs, who is the author of the book, Unsafe Thinking, How to Be Nimble and Bold When You Need It Most. Jonah is an author and a speaker, a marketing innovator whose pioneering approaches to digital media were critical in uh, bringing some of uh, some powerful uh, social change, such as equity, empowerment, responsibility. Jonah, a question, too, is um, what do you do if you find yourself in an organization that really, you know, the systems are so embedded, the structure is so fixed that they're not really open to unsafe thinking? Is there a way – I mean, do you have to leave these organizations or can you stay in the organization and keep trying to push from inside? Yeah, I mean, there's, there's a lot of difficulty with some organizations that resist change and people banging their heads against the wall for years and years and not being able to find a way to express their, you know, their creative potential. There's sort of no way to avoid the fact that when we get together in groups, our ability to act uh, unsafely can become somewhat diminished. But at the same time – Innovation really requires other people, and we really can't make significant change in the world completely on our own. So what I recommend for people who are in organizations that really resist change is not to, you know, go in, you know, read a book like this and start waving it around and say, hey, guys, it's time that we take a lot more risks. It's time that we, you know, get out on the edge, because that's just going to be greeted as, you know, creating fear in leadership. Um, what seems to work is, is focusing instead on small changes to process that actually open up people's um, thinking. And that doesn't have to come from leadership. That can come from anybody on the team. So I talk about techniques in the book like red teaming, where you know, if a group is, if, and a team is too focused on being nice to each other and not good at getting confrontational, you can play fun games where you know, everyone can act nice in the brainstorming phase when you're thinking of new solutions, but then you go into a role play where the idea is to beat up and destroy the other team's ideas. And in doing that, um, you know, the team finds out their flaws and they mm. make them better and you break that kind of, you know, rush to consensus that can be so problematic. So that's, you know, a small thing. Um, telling stories openly about people who break the rules and who succeed um, has been studied by people who, who look at organizational dissent and find that when people hear those stories, it actually doesn't um, create a sense of chaos or um, lower their social status in a group. But telling those stories actually make them seem more trustworthy when you break rules in the open and, and celebrate those stories. Um, so, you know, those are a couple of things. If you're a kind of a mid-level leader, you can, um, and you're in an organization where kind of expertise and self-aggrandizement is driving quite a bit of, you know, fixed and rigid thinking, um, you can do some interesting psychological tricks on yourself and others by humbling yourself uh, in comical ways, for instance, to get down off that podium. I tell the story of a the Indian leader of a 56,000-person company in, in India, you know, CEOs are kind of 
emperors in, in some ways. Uh, they really expected to know and be up on a podium. And he said, you know, by doing a silly Bollywood dance as his first act um, as the CEO and kind of making a fool of himself, he was able to step down off that, off that high podium and tell himself that he didn't have to pretend to know more than he did. And when leaders do stuff like that, it signals to the organization that it's okay to, be, to let go, have a little bit of fun and not have the stakes be so high. So, yeah, I'd say if you're in a very strict and rigid organization that doesn't want to embrace change, it might be time to look for something else. But there are lots of kind of um, rebellious acts you can do from within that won't get you labeled as a tr- troublemaker. Yeah, boy, and we need it. Uh, Jonah Sachs, thank you so much for your time, your insight. The name of the book, Unsafe Thinking, How to Be Nimble and Bold When You Need It Most. We all need to push a little bit more, don't we? And you can do it in a kinder, gent- gentler way. You don't have to beat somebody up to to think differently. You just, you can still be respectful and think different. Powerful. We'll continue the journey more straight ahead. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. Coach would have put me in fourth quarter. We'd have been state champions. Because life doesn't come with a handbook, you need a coach. Here's Dr. Matt and his coaching corner. Play ball! Welcome back, folks. You know, uh, our goal, again, is raising independent children, and there's no easy way to just make that happen. It's, it's, not, it's not the waving of a wand. You can't just, they can't just declare their independence. Independence has to be earned, and you see it when the kids have confidence and the tools they need. This is especially important as, you know, we're about to launch a bunch of new kids from high school graduation, from college graduation, uh, out into the world, are, are your children independent? Do they have the, the ability to, uh, to basically um, be spiritually independent? Are they able to connect to their deeper purpose? Are they emotionally independent, meaning can they keep their cool and help others to keep theirs? Do they understand their emotional strengths and their weaknesses? Are they financially uh, solid and independent? Do they have the ability to pay their own bills, to make their own way? Do they have the ability to understand credit and debt? It's a big problem with our kids today. They get to college. They they walk through an airport, and someone says, hey, I'll give you a T-shirt if you sign up for a credit card. And you're like, is it that easy? And the next thing you know, you're wearing your T-shirt to uh, bankruptcy court. Um so those are some ways that we've talked about before on the show about creating some more independent children. Also, a couple of other ways that we want to make sure our children are independent from us as parents are intellectually independent. Can they solve their problems and can they think for themselves? Do they actually know how to figure something out? And we've got to be so careful because it's very easy for us as parents who have lived forever to just go get the car washed or to go figure out what we have to do to get our car licensed. But the, the dilemma is that information is out there, and if you tell your child how to do it, then the next time they don't actually know how to figure out how to do it. We've got to teach our kids that they've got to be curious. They've got to use the value of um, the Internet and the, and, the, and the web, but they also have to use the right sources. They need to know what sources to question on the internet. They need to know what are the best um, sources that actually are, are legitimate, that we can trust. They need to just know simple ways to search, healthy ways to search, 
we have so many opportunities with our kids today to have more information, to be more intellectually strong, and yet um, are they getting there? Or as parents, are we always intervening? We've got to help them try to evaluate their own thinking, um, understand when their arguments may not be strong, how to make a strong argument, how to be open and 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 literally willing to adjust and um, fix our way of thinking, as our uh, last guest was talking about. So intellectually independent. Can they solve their own problems? Can they think for themselves? Um, also, I'd, I'd make sure that they also are able to hear information from other perspectives without, uh, you know, being terrified by the fact that there are other opinions, that there are other perspectives. Um, also overlook the, the human nature, the, tendi- the tendency that we all have to just not keep learning. You know, learning's hard. So let's just go the easy way, the lazy way, right? And just let's just accept what everyone else is saying is true. Parents, we can help them talk more about their lives. We probably ought to be asking our kids a lot more about their opinions before we share our own and show them and literally walk them through how to make decisions and how to get to the better answers. Another way we need to make sure our kids are independent is socially. Do they know how to care for others? Do they connect deeply with others? Are they socially independent kids? Do they have a voice? Do they know how to share their voice? Do, they, do you notice that they don't share their opinions very easily? Have they, uh, have they been able to lift the anchors that may have kept their ship nice and safe in the harbor, but have they been able to lift those anchors so that that ship can get out and start to sail with other ships? In our relationships, we've got to be able to work with people. And a lot of us, if we've had, you know, a traumatic childhood or if our parents, you know, had problems or something happened in our life, we may have learned that it's easier to not attach to others. So make sure that our kids don't have these attachment issues, that they can truly uh, connect to others, that they are willing to be vulnerable. Do they know how to manage a conflict? Do they know how to actually have a real communication, a real conversation? Are they introverted or extroverted? These are all things that we should be able to help our kids to better understand who they are as they have to walk this crazy thing we call life. It's not easy, but uh, independence has got to be there. And the reason it's got to be there is because you can't get to an interdependent relationship if you don't have two solid independents. And if we have somebody that's too dependent, we will never get to an interdependent state. An interdependent state is where I, you know what, I don't have to be with you, but I want to be with you. I choose to be with you because being with you, it makes my life better. A dependent state means I have to be with you because you're the one paying the bills, so I have to do what you're saying. What are we doing to make our kids more independent? How do we turn their lives over to them, put them in their own driver's seat, and let them lead, let them live? That's what we've got to figure out as parents. And it's not easy, but it's doable. And we'll we'll help you. We'll be your guide on the side. That's why we do the show. We'll continue the journey, take a little break up next. We'll uh, talk a little bit more about how raising can-do kids, how to do that, and how to, uh, how to do it in this world that seems so counter that. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. You know, uh, as we try to do with our kids, you know, we want them to be can-do. We want them to be self-motivated, self-driven, 
And uh, yet it's we live in a world where that might be harder and harder. And a few uh, months ago, we interviewed Richard Rendy, who uh, is the author of the book Raising Can-Do Kids, Giving Children the Tools to Thrive in a Fast-Changing World. And uh, Richard, um, when we started the interview, I, I asked, why is optimism so important in a child's development? Well, look, let's face it. I mean, we've always everyone's always had lives where there's going to be a lot of, of bumps in the road and problems to solve and things aren't going their way. Um, you know, if we look again at some of the things that parents worry about, that the future is going to be uncertain, that, that, you know, there's a lot of scariness about the unknown. I mean, that's screaming for optimism because we're talking, you know, optimism as a, in research has a tremendous platform that goes back for decades It's often misunderstood. We're talking about a very realistic optimism that actually acknowledges exactly what's going on, exactly what the issues are, exactly what the problems are, but orients you to thinking about what is that next thing I can do, not to necessarily get rid of the problem, but what's the next step I can take to try to chip away at it. Hmm. And that's the kind of thing that, over time, and, you know, we talk to a lot of entrepreneurs who, um, you know, go through years and years of, of, you know, lack of success and things falling apart. And and it's not a, it's not that kind of blind faith or that wishful thinking, you know, that, that, yeah. that sinks you. It's not like, oh, this will work out. I'll just keep doing this. They keep, like, looking at what am I learning from my experiences and what do I, what can I do a little differently? This hasn't worked. This hasn't worked. And, but you need that emotional drive. That's part of the optimism. It's both cognitive, right? It's a belief system yeah. that I can change things. But it's also a little bit of, you know, you can't get that, that negative thinking leads to negative emotions. And that's the thing that makes you stop. And yeah, it bogs you down. It bogs you down. And it also prevents you from seeing these little slivers of opportunity that, you know, all of that, that pounding and, and all that might, in essence, be taking you to where you want to go. Mm. But you have to have that viewpoint of, I'm going to look look for it. Um, I'm going to use an analogy, which is um, not a great analogy, but I try to come up with one yeah. to try to make a point. Let's say, you know, something's important to you. You're trying to get into a parking lot, right? And, you know, you, you're, show, you're pulling up towards it. And it's it looks full, right? It looks jammed. Yeah. And you could, on the one hand, say, you know, ah, forget it. You know, this thing I was going to was really, really critical for me tonight. But look, it's jammed up. You start getting mad. You get frustrated. You start looking around. And what happens in your brain? All of a sudden, you say, "I'm not going to get to the spot. Forget it." Yeah. Right. As opposed to saying, "Well, let's see." Maybe I'll circle the lot. And maybe when you're in that funky mood, someone's walking out and someone who, who's optimistic by nature is thinking, okay, what are my options here? First of all, maybe someone's going to leave. And, you know, they're going to have their radar screen on and they're going to say, whoa, there's a person walking out, window down. Hey, you leaving? Cool. I'll, you know, you go to that spot. You might think about where else can I park? Can I park somewhere else? Can, can I walk two blocks what do I need to do? Yeah. And, you know, it's, it's, it's a real-life moment, but you could see just from, from even that kind of, you know, it's a real-life example. Um, 
But those are things that actually come into play. You know, things in life aren't always hugely dramatic. It's these little kinds of bumps. And, and these are the things that, you know, I use that example because think about it now if your kid's in the car. Yeah, that's what I was just thinking. If my kid's in the car and I'm modeling and, and even talking mom- out what I'm doing. Yeah. Oh, crap. Everyone else got here before me. Yeah. I'm done. It's over. Yeah. I've lost out on my opportunity. I'm going to go home and sulk. The gods or, are against me. Right. I never get my parking place exactly. right. Exactly. How come they got their spot? Right. <laughs> and then it's also, true. you know, so, or as opposed to this kind of problem. So, hey, let's everybody, eyes open. See if someone's leaving. I mean, um, let's think about where else do we park? Um, well, and ask your kids and, and, like, sit there and say, okay, what would you guys do? What should we do? Yeah. What are some ways we could fix this together? I mean, any – and really, it's anywhere. It's how can we get our shopping done and the Absolutely. the house cleaned by noon so that we can go do something fun and brainstorm it? Absolutely. And I, I, mean, I, would, I would guarantee you that any very successful person across any domain will tell you that they have those moments, you know, throughout their career – where those little moments, those little kinds of things are kind of the stuff of the big success. Yeah. That it's not just that, you know, it's a huge opportunity and make or break. It's these little day-to-day things that keep the, the people going. And and for, for kids to learn that, you know, they'll, they'll translate that. They're going to translate that into, I mean, let's take it a step further. Let's say you go through all those steps, your kid's brainstorming with you in the car, you don't get a parking spot. So do you just go home and say, well, we tried. <laughs> or Day say, over. All right, look, let's, let's learn from this. Next time, let's leave early. Yeah. Yeah. You know, like next time, hey, all right, lesson learned. Guess what, guys? This was really important. Yeah. And this is the key of the optimism, right? It's not whistling in the dark. Right. It's like saying, okay, you know what? We got a little burnt here by this. <laughs> next time, let's get here a half hour early. Let's figure out something to do to kill time make sure we're here early next time. And that's the problem solving. It seems thing. like that's the – it's it's almost like – and what I know it is one of your principles too is thinking out of the box. But it's like as parents, we need to parent out of the box. We need to kind of parent for the future, not yes. parent the way we were parented. Absolutely. Absolutely. This is going to be the kid's future. Think about this with all the – you know, trying to figure out what kind of work they're going to do navigating a workspace, navigating how, you know, things change. You show up one day, someone else owns a company you're working for. What are you going to do? Yeah. You know, you're going to, your job might change. Maybe it's an opportunity. Maybe you need to get out of there. Um, these And that stuff happens quick, right? right. That stuff can happen fast. You have to be flexible. And so I want to point out something that you said, Matt, that I think is really important. You know, in our book, you know, when you're laying these things out and you, you want people to focus on different themes, and we mentioned this at the end of the book, it, it's sort of arbitrarily you have to lay them out one by one. But the fact of the matter is all this stuff pulls in together, right? Mm-hmm, right. So you said, right, it's optimism, plus it's thinking out of the box, right, which is the innovation and, yeah. uh, and the hard work. is something we talk about in industrious, just to, you know, to know the, the, the value. of part. It, it all comes together in real moments. It's not like one minute I need to pull on optimism. They, these things all feed each other. And this is why they're so powerful when you put them all together that it leads to successful adult. Well, I, mean, I, would hear, I love I would it. I guarantee you, someone, you talk to somebody out in the world, I don't care if it's a music business, and that's one of the things. We talk to people in all kinds of businesses. It's not, you know, if you want just someone with a startup yeah. company type entrepreneur or an inventor. But 
you know, put all this stuff together, even with that silly example. I'll tell you, you know, you're you're going for a position, you're going for an internship, you're going for this, you're going for that. What are they looking for? Mm. They're looking for the kid who's there 15 minutes, 20 minutes early, because you know what that's telling them? They put all this together in their mind. That was Dr. Richard Rand, uh, who's doing what he can to help us raise healthier, happier families. We'll continue the journey. This is The Matt Townsend Show. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, friends. Happy days are here again. Dr. Matt here, along with Jeff and Terry. Why is, why is, that, your open? Why well, is that your open? Yeah, were they gone for a while? Well, Jeff wasn't here. Oh. Jeff's back. Uh, he's actually, well, I, I I think it's probation. Is that what we call it? Uh, parole? Sabbatical. It was a sabbatical. Yeah, but now you're it's all, on. It's all semantics. Enforced sabbatical. Yeah. Anyway, I, I don't like to look at it that. I like to look at it just that he's back. For a couple more days, <laughs> and uh, that makes it really fun because then we can we can catch him up on all of the other proceedings, all of the other things that have been going on. And I haven't been in the loop very well as much as I used to be. Yeah. So this, I appreciate this. It's fun to have you um, to put you back in the loop because yeah. you've got you're like what I was Who? getting kind of sick of the loop. Yeah. yeah. A little too loopy for me. Right. A little too fruity. Um, <laughs> Lot to cover today. Uh, by the way, last night my wife gave me for my birthday, which is next week. <gasps> I know. Um, she gave me tickets to Hamilton, and we went to Hamilton. Increíble! Wow. In Spanish for incredible. May tenth. Nope. May eleventh. No. Ninth. Seventh. Nope. Eighth. Yeah. You're not even going to question the ordering of my guesses there. <laughs> so, nope, nope, uh-uh, nope. You were on both sides of it. So, great, Hamilton. It's, it's a wonderful, hmm. it's amazing. Have you seen it, Terry? No. It's I the, just barely saw Wolverine the musical, so I'm good. I did listen to the Weird Al polka version of all of the songs from Hamilton. Really? Apparently he's good friends with Lin-Manuel Miranda. Just mix well, in an accordion, you're good. <laughs> It's actually quite entertaining. I got the gist of the show in the polka. I version. don't think you did. You probably didn't. <laughs> you, you may lose a little bit of something because I listened to the entire soundtrack like three times before I went, and so I thought I had a pretty good idea. How does how does it rate against Wolverine the musical? <laughs> Is there really Wolverine the musical? Well, you call it Greatest Showman, but I call oh, it Wolverine right. the musical. It's um, or Les Mis. It's, that oh, movie it's right. Made. It's right there. Okay. Did you it's know right that movie came out in December and it's still in movie theaters? Yeah. The Greatest Showman? It's yeah. because it's the greatest show, man. I saw it on hmm. DVD. It was like, yeah, we own it now. Yeah. It's worth owning because then you, you can have the sing-along, your kids, everybody loves it. Now my new favorite is uh, Hamilton. Hmm. I, I think I, I actually think I missed my calling in life. I think I should have been a rapper. Really? Mm-hmm. Just... I don't know what it is. I yeah. You don't want to you want to drop a beat for us <laughs> now or <laughs> I um I didn't no. know we were going to drop it. Well, I didn't know you were going to lay down a beat for me. Yeah. Yeah, no. I probably ought not. All right. Well. I'm just saying I missed my calling. Okay. Maybe I should have just been Hamilton. Yeah, yep. maybe I should have been Hamilton. 
Maybe. Anyway, uh, lots to cover today. We've got uh, some headlines. Terry, what else should we be paying attention to other than my Hamilton debut? Uh, Hillary Clinton retired from electoral politics after losing the election to President Trump in 2016. Oh, yeah, for sure. Just just to kind of get that out there. So she's still retired. matter of fact. Uh, But GOP candidates and allied groups keep running against her. Yeah. From January 1st through April 24th, Republicans ran 12,864 ads on TV mentioning Clinton or showing her photo, USA Today reports. What? She's... 12,800 political ads with her speaking or a photo of her in the ad. This is what's wrong with politics. You can't even... You can't even lose, be out for four years before, and they still are running against you. More than 5,000 of those ads were from Ohio's uh, GOP gubernatorial primary. 3,700 ads were aired by Republicans running to face Senator Joe Manchin in West Virginia. 13,000 ads against Hillary Clinton this year. So other than unpopular Democrats, including, include other unpopular Democrats include former President Barack Obama, Featured in 8,900 ads. Wow. Uh, House Minority Leader Nancy Pelosi, who appears in 9,700 ads. And if you live in a state where Trump won bigly, as this USA Today article says, <laughs> in 2016, you can expect to see a lot of Clinton on your TV set this fall. So good luck with Interesting. that. Interesting. Well, I mean, <sighs> I could see Pelosi because she She's could be currently in office. Yeah, and, she could yeah. take the gavel back. Yeah. But. We need to let the rest go. The rest of it is kind of feels like you're punching Can in you a imagine? shadow. Imagine Obama's got to be having a great life right now. Oh, just yeah, <laughs> he has no no care, right? Just kicking back. Awesome. Cambridge Analytica is shutting down after months of scandal over its oh. alleged misuse of personal Facebook data, and will be imminently they will immediately cease all operations, according to They're a done. press release. The firm also said it would be filing for bankruptcy for its U.S. affiliates. The Wall Street Journal reports that uh, mounting legal fees have also contributed to their decision to close the doors. The firm details its unwavering confidence that its employees have acted ethically and lawfully and there have done no, uh, any allegations of wrongdoing were unfounded. Yeah. They're innocent, but we got to shut the doors because, you know. You know. Just lawsuits. (laughs) And Facebook's value dropped. That too. Whatever. The first death related to the multi-state E. coli outbreak linked to romaine lettuce has been reported in California, according to NBC oh, News. No. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention updated its numbers Wednesday, totaling 121 reported people getting sick from eating romaine in 25 states. At least 52 people have been hospitalized, including 14 who suffered from kidney failure. Kentucky, Massachusetts, and Utah were also added to the list of states affected. Uh-oh. The CDC narrowed down the tainted romaine lettuce grown in Yuma, Arizona, which of which most was reportedly sold in the wintertime. So. Well, by the way, I was in uh, Miz- or, uh, Ohio earlier this week, yep. and sorry, we can't put lettuce on your sandwich Actually, no. we can. It'll be iceberg lettuce, not Which romaine. Is tasteless and horrible. Mm. Oh, you're so anti. Um, and soggy. It soggies up your sandwich. I By love the way soggy sandwich. The person that it was infected in the state of Utah, yeah, left the state, consumed a salad, and returned. Hmm, that'll teach you. Huh? So I will continue my partaking of the romaine for lunch every single day. You are living on the edge. It, my lettuce is from Salinas, California. I'm good. Right, or so you think. It says right on the bag. Your insurance rates must be through the roof. What what they don't know doesn't hurt my pocketbook. 
<laughs> Finally, federal court papers describe a scheme in which the mailing address for the corporate headquarters of shipping giant UPS was changed to a small apartment in the Chicago area, the Chicago Tribune reports. <laughs> <laughs> UPS is based in Sandy Springs, uh, uh, Chicago, with 745,000 square feet of office space at its headquartered campus. But mail destined for the headquarters was diverted to apartment L2 in the Rogers Park neighborhood of Chicago, according to the Tribune. Here's what the paper reported. Among the correspondence were letters meant for the company's CEO and other executives, sensitive documents containing personal information, as well as corporate credit cards and tens of thousands of dollars in business checks, according to the affidavit from the Postal Inspection Service. It wasn't until the resident, Deshaun Spruce, allegedly deposited nearly 60000 in UPS checks into his bank account in late January that UPS was alerted to the alleged scam, court papers said. UPS issued a statement saying the Postal Service corrected the issue and the, the inspector, a postal inspector is investigating the incident. Such changes of address fraud raises the risk of identity theft. The U.S. Postal Inspection Service website notes that a crook could submit the address change to divert customers' mail without their knowledge. So when a change is filed, post offices now send a move validation letter to the old and new address. Postal inspectors can ad- uh, arrest anyone suspected of filing a false change of address. Okay, let order. me get this straight. The yes. UPS corporate mail yeah to a chicago was headquarters was somehow changed was somehow changed um and all the mail went to some person's apartment in chicago and it's being investigated by the postal service yeah because it's postal fraud yeah the competitor yeah of ups true is going to somehow fix it's ups's problem it's their system where they uh-huh. switch them. Shouldn't right. there be some neutral third party that takes care of this? Yeah, like FedEx. Um, hmm. I'm just saying, I don't know that I'd turn everything over to the Utah, the USPS. You know, maybe that's, I don't know. I don't want to start a war here, but it seems a little fishy. That's like government investigating government. Hmm. Or That never happens. Yeah. It's like President Trump's justice system investigating itself. There's probably going to be war if they raise the price of those stamps again. Okay. You know, because like the the one time a year that I need a stamp, yeah, and then I find out that it's been raised a cent. It's like six dollars. <sighs> you need to get over that. You need to relax, man. Relax. Hey, up next, we're going to be talking about um, how to how to kind of compliment another person. Without going to their physical beauty. You know, hey, you look great. Hey, you smell nice. Thank you. And thank you. I was actually not talking to you. You were looking right at me. Uh, Was I? Okay. Hey, up next, uh, Jeanette Bennett should be joining us. We'll find out uh, her take on conversation starters and compliments that uh, might build our self-esteem along the way. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. In studio with us is the uh, the wonderful Jeanette Bennett. She is uh, the founder and editor-in-chief at Bennett Communications, where she basically puts five or six magazines together 
per day. Per day, per mm-hmm. quarter, per year. <laughs> it's 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 exhausting we just write thinking stuff. about it. You're a great writer oh, and you. speaker and singer extraordinaire. Oh, hmm. Don't, don't ask me to prove that. Uh, a talent. And every time you come to the studio, we appreciate it because you bring a scent of freshness. Well, thank you. <laughs> to our office. Even though I ran in here, which might have changed things a little bit. No, but you know, no, no. <laughs> it still seems balanced. Well, thank you. Uh, compared to what this room can smell like just after yeah, the boys are in the here. The man cave, yes. So uh, we're, uh, we're excited to have you here. Um, by the way, you, you've, got, you've got some tips for us. Well, one of my concerns has been I, I interact with a lot of young women yeah, and uh, leaders of young women and in my professional life, in my church life, and I have three daughters, I have five sisters. And one of the things I've noticed is the easiest thing for us to do when we start a conversation right. with a woman is to say, your hair looks cute. Your hair I, looks dark. I like your skirt. Like your eyes. I like your eyes. That's kind of weird. Is that lip sense you're wearing? It's, it's about a physical attribute. Your scent. Your scent. See, you just fell into the trap. I totally but I like it. I totally. I'll, I'll take that compliment but it's, but any day. It's it's funny that we go to. I guess we're sensory beings, so we kind of go to the. Or sometimes we just go to their looks. You look great today. Yeah, which is easy and it's nice, and especially when you don't know the person very well, it's hard to really yeah. compliment too much more than that. But here's the problem: we send the message that I value you because of how you look. Uh huh. And I would value you less if. If you didn't have whatever, yeah. If you chopped the hair off, if you weren't That's wearing makeup, true. if you were if you were not wearing a designer outfit or something. And so we send that message. And the thing is, women hate it when men objectify women and base everything on the looks. But then as women, we perpetuate the problem a little bit by doing it to each other, by mm. complimenting those things. Yeah. And I think that's especially something to think about with young women who are fragile. They're trying to figure out where their value is. Mm-hmm. And if they're constantly hearing, oh, I like your skirt, I like your hair, then what we acknowledge gets repeated. So they're going to think, okay, these things are important. They should be top priority. So I don't think it's wrong or bad necessarily to compliment those things. But if we could also add other things. Yeah. Do we do the same thing to men? Because I don't know. It doesn't seem like we do. You look handsome in those pants. Yeah, no no one ever says that. (laughs) You probably don't hear that. Well, I mean, with Jeff, we're like, whoa, Jeff, those are too tight. Or, hey, man. Put a shirt on. Put a shirt on. Shave once in a while. Stuff like that, we yeah, say. So, so opposite of compliments. You insult each other <laughs> yeah. about physical characteristics. It's, it's just kind of fun. <laughs> but but you can see how doing this with young women would be – it's it's dangerous potentially because – emotionally because it's they're fragile. And you don't want anyone's identity to be hung on a physical attribute. No, and for so many reasons that's not a good idea. Um, a, those things might change. When women – get their their 30s and 40s as am I and you put on weight all of a sudden does your value go down yeah. when your value you feel like maybe your value has been based on your thinness or yeah your thick hair and what if those things change also we're so much more than our outward appearance and uh, we need to know that and I think we can encourage young women by some of the questions or compliments we give them yeah so if we say something to them instead like you look happy today What's making you happy? Oh, interesting. It encourages yeah. them. It, first of all, it compliments them on that and encourages them to, yes, feel happy and show happiness in your face. Hmm. And so that's a simple word change. Totally. But I think it sends a different message. Yeah. Give uh, me more of those. That's, I mean, like, that's different than nice smile. Right. Which and is still I, fine. I, I know somebody, though, that that is, they're self-conscious about their smile. Because okay. their teeth aren't right. what they think it should be. So, mm-hmm. but happy is so 
neutral and principled. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think it encourages more of that. Other things we could say is to someone who we don't know very well, tell me your story. Instead of starting right with the, the clothes, just tell me your story. Tell me about you. Um, I had a, a friend. Well, I was having this conversation online with other women in the community, and how could we make this better? And she, she said, I like to say to a, a young girl, you look like someone who knows stuff. What's, mm. what's something you know? That's and cool. it encourages that. Um, another question you could ask is, what's a problem you'd want to solve in the world? It encourages women to get educated, perhaps even go into STEM. Uh, so we can encourage a lot of things like that. Uh, I also think we can tap into their hopes and dreams. Okay, so um, and part of this is um, what have you not succeeded at lately? So a question that I think is interesting, and I've been asking my kids it is, what have you failed at today mm. or lately? What'd you learn? Yeah, you know, so that we tell them it's totally okay. We all fail. Right. What'd you learn? Let's just be resilient, which is another thing we as parents and leaders and mentors want is more resilient. Yeah, absolutely. So what have you failed at lately? Ooh, tell yeah, me about nothing. That. I didn't fail at anything. Oh, Why? Okay. <laughs> but some, I mean, sometimes they're not failing because they're just not trying, trying anymore. Apathy. Why try if you're mm-hmm. going to fail? Right. And failure is not. We don't usually lead with that. We don't celebrate that. But that's why but that's one of the reasons our kids have anxiety Yeah, is they think failure is not okay and they're afraid of it. Absolutely. So if we acknowledge, hey, that's, hey, what'd you fail at? And how do we move past it? It's cool. It's cool. Great idea. Uh, what could you talk about for hours? That's a question I ask people when I'm interviewing them sometimes. It's interesting. Hmm. You know, what's on your mind? What could, you talk, what could you talk about for hours? For teenagers, it might be music. It might be fashion. You know, It might not be rocket science. Right. But still, it acknowledges that they have a brain yeah. inside that beautiful head. <laughs> so great. Yeah. What could you talk about for hours? When, and you learn a lot of these because you go to, you go to you know, big meetings, big events where you're schmoozing and having to you know, just create a lot of chit-chat. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean – it's easy to just be what's the word fake right superficial superficial yeah. but the downside is when we turn those i mean that's one thing i guess that like a cocktail party to raise money for some new library it's different when you're talking to a young woman right who is the daughter of a friend or whatever mm-hmm. i mean it's you got to be careful who you're talking to because any young person we talk to we're potentially mentoring them we're sending them a message yeah. one way or another. Oh, yeah. And so if we focus on superficial things, not that it's bad or wrong, but there just might be something better to ask them. Uh, another thing you could say is you have a curious look in your eye. What do you What mm. are you thinking about? Well, I was just thinking about robbing a bank. <laughs> wow. That's ambitious. Let's switch that slightly. <laughs> Let's just go to a mini mart. <laughs> How about if you become the banker? <laughs> go to a mini mart. Um, Isn't that interesting? So a few of these questions focus on mentoring. So what which women in your life have influenced you? You know, something like that. And same, which men in your life have influenced you? Who do you look up to and why? Uh, asking about teachers. Who's your, what teachers are you enjoying right now? And then on the flip side, asking them, is there a teacher who has negatively influenced you? Acknowledging there is that as well. Yeah, Give them a chance to, to share that. Uh, one caution that I've learned from interviewing people is – uh, certain personalities, an analytical personality, if you ask them a declarative statement like, what's your favorite movie of all time or what's been your favorite day of all time? <laughs> yeah. They start processing in their head. And they're not sure that's their favorite. It might be their second favorite. So they're just sitting there. So I try and make it what's one of your favorite or what is something you like. So if you do go to favorites, which I think is one of the easier ones, you know, do you have a favorite food, you know, favorite color, which I don't think is very interesting. Yeah. Like, what's a color that you, what's a color that's in your closet a lot? 
And why is that? You know, you could ask something like that. Interesting. It, that's that's not very deep, actually, but yeah. it might be easier for some people to then getting right to their uh, feelings. Um, another one that I like is, hey, I love your name. Is there a story behind it? Breaks down cool. the wall. Even if there's not, you know, they'll say, well, not really. My parents are from whatever, Wyoming, and they just like the name. So you learn something about them mm-hmm. by asking about their name. Is there, I mean, it seems like part of this should just be natural. And and yet be. the reality is, is a lot of people aren't, we don't know how to do this naturally. So having some guides like this, it's very helpful. Um, is, is there a difference? Because it, it seems like um, I'm a pretty playful person socially. Right. So I would tease uh-huh. and have fun. But, Which is fun. But you also have to be careful because, I mean, I don't want to offend them. I don't want to. They may not understand. Like I've noticed when I joke with certain people, they don't get it. <laughs> right. but like, or like my kids, like my kids get my humor, but their friends may not. Right. Well, I think most people who know you, they know that you're just having fun with I'm them. Just cray cray. And you only tease the ones you love. Yeah. You know that whole thing. So I, I guess part of this is knowing who you're talking to and and just kind of fill it out slowly. Mm-hmm. Find out who they are. Like you were giving the example of an intellectual, somebody that's really. You know, intellectual may not – you may not want to give make them choose an absolute favorite. Right. But yeah, just kind of feel them out. I think you can tell a lot by the look in someone's eyes, to be honest. And yeah. it's not whether they're attractive or not. It's just kind of their soul. Yeah. Is there a spark? <laughs> just is there a spark? Are the lights on? Uh, and you can kind of gauge it from that. But It's cool. You know, asking them what makes you happy, what makes you angry. You know, letting them acknowledge some feelings. That's another problem I think we have with our youth is we do expect them to be happy all of the time and we're concerned when they're not. Oh, yeah. In fact, I do this article every year, high school students who will change the world. And I always ask them what are the big pressures they feel in their lives. And one of them last year said something I've thought about a lot. He says, I feel so much pressure to constantly be happy. Everyone's always taking my happy temperature. Because we're so concerned about the anxiety and the depression that yeah. that was making him feel <laughs> the pressure. Stress. And so I think it's good to acknowledge that a full life includes a range of emotions. Mm-hmm. So even asking about, you know, what's been, what has disappointed you lately or what's been frustrating, that, that might feel like a negative question. But it also just acknowledges life is a full range of experiences and I'm, I want to hear about all of them. I'm interested so in all of them. Yeah, We're speaking with Jeanette Bennett, who is the founder and editor-in-chief at Bennett Communications, where she focuses on a bunch of different magazines, Utah Valley Magazine, Business Q Magazine, Prosper Magazine, Bridal Magazines, you name it. She's into everything, including uh, uh, Boy Scouts of America Magazine. <laughs> is that the Now next known one? as Scouts. Scouts. At BSN. It's interesting because a change like that, it's it's no longer uh, about the boys' it's Scouts. It's just about Scouts. And that uh, sparked a family group text about what BSA now stood for. Oh, no. Bennett's. <laughs> Bennett S. Bennett Stink. <laughs> at this, or there were lots oh, of different yeah. versions. How fun. We're, we're not your greatest scouters you've ever found. Yeah, but. it's hard to sometimes be a scouter. Uh, we could we could go there. Do you have another hour? No, nope, talk about no. scouting. Okay. <laughs> you, um, you, one of the things that uh, that you brought up earlier was mentoring. Mm-hmm. And how do you formally um, like? Because I, I get a lot of calls for people that want kind of a mentor relationship. Right. How do you How do you suggest we go about? creating mentor relationships? What advice would you give young people and their parents to find a mentor? And what about those that are being the mentor? What are the things we should offer these kids with this opportunity? I think the first thing we need to notice or recognize is that we are mentors. Uh, Any conversation we have with a youth uh, has the potential of them remembering it the rest of their lives. I remember something uh, 
uh, LDS bishop, he brought me a Women in Business magazine to church. He just handed it to me. And I couldn't believe he did that. And it sent just him handing it to me. I thought you might be interested in this. It sent a huge message to me. Wow. Now look at you. Now you're doing the magazine. (laughs) A, it's okay to have dreams like that. B, he thinks I'm capable of it. And C, he's going to cheer me on. You know, so... Little things like that. Um, I like to say things to young people like, I can't wait to watch all the things you're going to do. Yeah. Keep me posted. That kind of a thing. Because you're right. People, I'm sure you get this a lot, and I do too, people that want to come meet with you and want yeah. a lot of time. And it is hard to have that time and the mental energy to help someone else solve their problems and business dreams when we are solving our own. Right. <laughs> so that can be tricky. But I think, you know, acknowledge and, and make time for at least a few people in your life. Totally. That you can do that for. Send a quick card. Send a quick text. Um, comment on their social media. Just things like, this is awesome. I always knew you'd do great things. Like, Stuff that like that goes such a long way. It really does. Probably more than what you might get from doing it with anyone else. Mm-hmm. Like a coworker or a friend. I mean, those like, social media is great that way. But when you can l- give someone a leg up, a lift up, that's huge. A young person, they may never forget it. Oh, yeah. yeah. No, I've had, I mean, I remember... All of a sudden, just giving advising somebody on a business idea, and next thing I know, they're paying me big money to go speak at their big business event. Well, that paid off. And I'm like, wow. <laughs> no, but I'm thinking, wow. You went from an yeah, idea 10 right. years ago to killing it now. Which is so great. Not neat. And that gives you a lot of satisfaction, too, to see, yeah. to see people bloom like that. That's awesome. Um, so I think being willing to give of our time, acknowledging yeah. the mentors in our life, send them a thank you card if you haven't already. Mm-hmm. Reach out to them, call them on the phone, say, you know, you may not remember this, but 30 years ago you said this or you did this. And yeah. it, it made a difference. I haven't forgotten it. And, and really, like you're saying, too, frame the – Frame their skills, their abilities, their gifts as the ideal, not their physiology. Yes. Not their looks, not their... Yeah, exactly. Things that they know. So you could ask them, what's a, what's a book you're currently reading? You know, what do you like about it? Or um, what, what have you loved learning about? What's an accomplishment you're proud of? What's a project you're working on right now? Things like that. Hmm. I also think, so we've talked a lot about questions. I think just simple compliments. So I have some ideas on that too. Yeah. Um, I'm so happy you exist. That's cool. <laughs> Just something yeah. like that. Um, you're strong. I can tell you're a strong, strong soul. Or you have a beautiful soul. You know, some, compliment their soul, yeah. which is just one word change than yeah. from hair or face or eyes. But it says something so different. True. It says something really different. You inspire me. Being with you brings a lot of joy. Just these little statements where you make people feel better. You're intelligent. You matter to me. Wow, your confidence is refreshing. Mm. Those are cool. I can tell you're passionate about this. Wow. Um, you have great taste in. In fact, that might be a way to acknowledge clothing because that's not just saying, wow, um, anthropology made a great skirt there. Yeah. You're acknowledging them. You have great taste. Yeah, you, you bought have, it. You have great taste you're in. You're amazing. Yeah. yeah. You yeah. have an ability here. You could, Yeah. <laughs> yeah really, a gift. You've got a, an eye You've got this. a gift for finding the right clothes. Um, I'm so happy I'm alive so I could meet you. You're so understanding. I can tell you're a kind person. Things like this, because those are the kind of traits we want to foster, so we have to acknowledge them. Absolutely. Rather than constantly be telling them, you need to focus on your looks. So that's what I'm going to tell you I like yeah. about you. Is I mean, it's got to be hard anyway to be a young woman. But to then be a young woman that may that nobody notices, 
But all these comments you're saying, I'm, I'm thinking how that could change a life by just having some adults see that they rec- that you're being recognized. Right. I see you. You're amazing. Don't you love it when another adult does that for your kids? Oh, it's huge. We can say it a lot, and hopefully yeah. we do. But when someone outside the home acknowledges their skills and says, wow, you, you matter to me. I love being with you. Whatever it is, or encourages them, you know, what are you thinking about studying? What do you love learning about? And all of a sudden your daughter comes home, or son even, yeah. and, and is excited about that. That's huge when someone else does Absolutely. that for your kid. No, yeah, huge. It's huge. What, uh, as we wrap it up, what would you say is the one thing? If there's one thing we can remember about lifting others, you know, whether it's through compliments or just our conversations, what's the one thing we should keep in mind? Try and make a real connection with everyone you meet, which would involve looking them in the eye, calling them by name. So when you hear their name, whatever you have to do to remember it. Instead and, of, hey, buddy. Hey, buddy, which is easy. Hey, darling. <laughs> hey, sweetie. <laughs> Oh, exactly. It's so hard when you meet lots of people. But a name, saying their name means so much to them. When you remember their name, it's Mm -hmm. huge. So look them in the eye, say their name, and make a connection with what you say. Connect to something about them in their their soul. That is huge. Oh, you did it again, Jeanette. Do they call you Nettie? You did it again, Nettie. Nettie. I love it when you call me that. It's a great name. Nettie Knows Nets, my... um, my March Madness bracket. Oh, Hello. Nettie knows nets. <laughs> That's right. You killed it. I, I killed it sort of till the end. Yeah, till you lost. Till I lost. That's how it always goes. Yeah. You've but, got a real talent for that. Thank you. I think I did pick Villanova. So See? Yeah, I nailed it. That's really good. <laughs> Jeanette Bennett's her name. And uh, if you go to utahvalley360.com, you can get to all of her great offerings, her books, her, her publications. She is the myth, the legend. And uh, we're glad to have her on our team. We'll continue the journey more straight ahead. Do a little uh, empty news. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. Welcome back. It's time for our empty news segment. These, uh, These are all the news stories that make the news that, you know, you didn't even know we're news. Uh, Jeffrey, what is what is worse than a motorcycle accident? If you're if you're riding the motorcycle and you crash your motorcycle, what could be worse than that? Hmm. Uh, maybe being hit in the shin. No. Really? Because nope. I would imagine that would be extremely painful. No, nope. no. Nope. Nope. Sorry. That's a wrong answer. Not to be rude. Huh. Wrong answer. Uh, what's worse than a motorcycle crash is when, as you're crashing, the gun that you had in your belt goes off and shoots you. <laughs> that is worse. A Florida motorcyclist. Oh, he's so sad. You would be too if you crashed your motorcycle and your gun went off. Florida motorcycle involved in a crash was shot by his own gun Thursday, troopers said. The motorcyclist had a gun on his hip when the bike crashed. The gun discharged, shooting him, the Florida Highway Patrol said. Both the motorcyclist and a passenger on the bike were taken to the regional medical center with non-life-threatening injuries. They were wearing helmets, though. Oh, good. Thank heavens. Always wear a helmet if you're planning on crashing and getting shot. (laughs) Noted. (laughs) (laughs) Remember that one. An airline passenger in China was detained for 15 days after removing an emergency exit door. What? Yep. Uh, They just took the exit door, the emergency exit, uh, off because the cabin was stuffy. Hmm. Yeah. The man was detained for 15 days, uh, according to the uh, report out of a Chinese airport. Um, 
the 25-year-old man reportedly said he was attempting to bring fresh air into the cabin, which had become hot. He said he didn't realize the latch he pulled down would open the emergency exit. Uh, I'm sorry. This is mid-flight. Right. How did he not get sucked out of the airplane? Oh, actually, sorry. He was on the ground. Okay. Gotcha. Uh, but so, you know, you're just not allowed. Remember, they always say, um, can we get the flight attendants to arm the doors? <laughs> <laughs> and you hear, once you have a door armed. Maybe they'll raise the minimum uh, emergency exit row age. They must. They may need to. But, you know, when it is hot and stuffy on a plane, sometimes you just need air. And those those little twirly vents that they give you that you can oh, yeah. twirl open and close, it's just not working. No. And By the so, way, why – why is the minimum car rental age 25 years old? Well, because you don't want a bunch of juvies out driving around in nice cars. Yeah, but I mean, if you're 16 when you can drive and you're an adult when you're 18, why is it 25? Well, because you've got to be insured. And maybe there's a minimum age that they believe you could actually have good insurance. Then maybe it should be 26 because isn't that the point at which you're no longer on your parents' insurance? Ah, that's you should point. know this because – don't you have kids that are almost off of your insurance? Yes. Finally, I have one that might almost be off. Wow. But I don't want her to be off because she's having twins. Oh, that's right. And twins can be expensive. So yeah. we'd like to keep her on for a while longer. Just keep her out of the emergency exit aisle. Okay? I think this guy actually had a panic attack. Okay. <laughs> so when, once you're losing air, you need, you need air. And uh, another window smasher, a woman um, smashes Popeye's window with a chair because the store wouldn't let her order a Wendy's special. What? I know. Wait, wait. What about Popeye? Uh, Popeye's a sailor man. Uh, well, Popeye's who lives a in a garbage can. Yeah, but no. what, what was it? Popeye's chicken is okay. a chain. Oh, Popeye's chicken. Yeah. But what, how does this connect with Wendy's? Well, the woman was ticked off because she went to a Staten Island Popeye's and tried to order from a discount menu that you can only find at Wendy's. Oh, right. So everything you just said now, the first time. Now, yeah. Okay. I just reread it. <laughs> but I tried to do it slower this time so you, yeah. could, you could hear I it. I just heard Popeye and I got excited. So the woman was ticked off and took a chair and slammed it through a window and was caught on tape. So the cops have a video of the whole thing, and the foul frenzy began when a hot-headed customer tried to get food at the restaurant. She wanted something off the four-for-four four menu. Yeah. But, Everybody uh, wants something off the four-for-four four yeah. menu. It's just – except Popeye's doesn't have a four-for-four four menu. Yeah, but how many times have you seen that in your own home where you have little kids that are ordering off the menu, quote, that, that's – and you don't offer what they want? Yeah. You know? Yeah. So uh, we always say, hey – Bud, to my son, this ain't Burger King. You can't have it your way. And no matter how many times you explain it to them, it doesn't process that we don't have those items in our house. So can we have tacos? No, this ain't Taco Bell, buddy. You can't have it your way. The woman ordered the meal anyway off of the four and four menu and then sat down to eat and then um, had words with the employees on the way out. Security footage shows her stick her tongue out, wave her hands in the air, swing a large poster board at the front door. And for her finale, the woman picked up a chair and bashed it in one of the uh, eatery's glass windows. Maybe she was having a panic attack. Yeah. Don't put her in the emergency aisle either. No. She's she's. And by the way, because when they find out that they that they don't have those dry roasted peanuts. Oh yeah. 
Yeah. Can I get some plantar planters peanuts? No, we don't have those. Sorry. You want pretzels? No, I want planters peanuts. <laughs> hey, we're not Southwest. Sorry, bud. Can't have it your way. Anyway, uh, interesting stuff, folks. You know, thank heavens. Isn't it good to be you? Life could be so much worse. Up next, we'll be visiting two of the best, uh, BYU Sports Nation, our good friends there, Spencer and Jerem. Find out what's coming up on their show at the top of the hour. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, folks. Name this scene. This is the scene, uh, the volleyball scene from Top Gun. It's hard to do a, a, a movie scene on radio. Why we bring it up is because it's oh, now... everybody knows this they? scene. Well, we're going to go down to two Top Guns and see if uh, if they know. Our good friends from BYU Sports Nation are joining us. Spencer and Jeremy. Hello, gentlemen. Nice shot, Iceman. We've missed your musk the past couple days. I've missed your musk. Actually, I see your. I see. I can smell your musk as you guys walk by down the hall. You can. I bought new cologne yesterday. Oh, I can smell it. It smells great. Thank you. you smell like a taco. Thank you. Hey, um, by the way, does anybody else feel sorry for Anthony Edwards? He's the only one that is not shirtless in this scene. Well, there's a reason for that, right? <laughs> now, can you guys make try, just see if you can put the tie together here? Why would we lead out with the Top Gun volleyball scene? Because it's Final Four volleyball night volleyball. for BYU. How did you know that? You guys are brilliant. Volleyball, right. volleyball. So uh, this is a big deal. Final Four BYU playing UCLA. Yeah, not only not only is the Top Gun tie relevant because it's volleyball, but that volleyball match took place in California in the movie mm. at Miramar in Southern California, where BYU will play tonight in the Final Four in Southern California. Somebody knows his Top Gun history. Wow. Yes. Let's give you the breakdown of the volleyball match. Just show me Tom Skerritt. I'm going to take that guy down. Give us some play-by-play. Of the volleyball match tonight or me taking – Tom Skerritt down in training, <laughs> combat training. Either way. Either one. Whichever, <laughs> whichever one you got time for. Well, Jer- Jerem's the play-by-play voice of BYU Volleyball. And it's really easy to just do play-by-play on the spot when someone asks you to do play-by-play. No. Spike, point Cougars. There you go. Listen, here's the dealio. Hit it. BYU has won nine of the last ten against UCLA. Oh, the only God. loss was yeah. earlier this year at UCLA where the game's being played. But yeah. BYU had locked up the one seed in the conference tournament the game before. They didn't have to win that, okay? Okay. So the stakes weren't they the same, yeah. right? Right. Uh, BYU 7-1 and one in the national semifinal, or the final four. Wow. 7-1. They're really good. The only one they lost was 2014 when it was the fourth time against that team that season. This is the fourth game against UCLA, and it's at UCLA. So it makes you a little nervous, right? But I feel really confident that BYU is going to take care of business. This is huge. We're going to talk to Jalen Reyes, assistant coach, coming up on the program. Oh wow! We need to. But we have a lot. We have a lot of big topics today, too. Yes, it's not just volleyball. Hold on, it, bigger than this? Yes. Okay. What, not, what, not from a results standpoint. Yeah. From a big picture. Okay, okay. 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 So what? What else is going? What else is going on? We're going to talk to SB Nation's Bill Connolly. We made a big deal about him projecting BYU football to win five point four games in the twenty eighteen season, but we're going to go. Next level with him. Okay. And try and figure out what he means by, can Kalani Satake make BYU 
BYU again. Mm. We're what? making trucker hats that say <laughs> BYU, make BYU football great again. We're going there. <laughs> That's great. Also, uh, some news on the future of BYU and Utah State football mm. series and why the Cougars' 2018 schedule is already too tough. Really? Mm-hmm. This is – so th- this, is, this is big. That's big. Eight clap that, UCLA fans. <laughs> Eight clap that? Yeah. Put that on a bumper sticker. Uh-huh. Huh? Eight clap that. Okay. Anything else going have on? You, on the show? Have you announced anything? No. No. Really? Yeah. Really? Not yet. The best dynasty in BYU sports <laughs> history will also be discussed today. Ooh. I thought you were going to say dynasty. Dynasty. I told him my family, I gave him a $2 bill if he said dynasty the whole time. So, the, you're That's saying over. it's off the table. The now. best sports dynasty? Dynasty. At Brigham. Okay. My my answer is way off the board, but it's totally right. Oh, wow. Really? Mm-hmm. Okay. You're kind of, that That was, kind, it sounds like you guys have been arguing about this for a nope. while. No, no. Nope, Spencer doesn't know my answer. No, oh, he yeah, doesn't. I, I really don't know. I See, I thought Jeremy and I were on the same page here, but he just threw me a curveball, so I'm a little intrigued now. My fastball will be obvious, but my, my slurve will be different. Ooh. Slurve's always different. Yeah. Um, that's, uh, that's quite a show you guys have loaded. This is a loaded Thursday, May 3rd show. I dare say it's the best May 3rd we've ever produced. <laughs> We're going to have to go back over the last uh, four, four or five years and figure that check out. the digital tape. <laughs> were, were you guys, did you have a hard time parking with Women's Conference on campus? Uh, not so much parking as just getting to work. Yeah. Did you guys get mugged? Because I know you are iconic and, um, you know, when you That's pull up. That's our demo. The, all the it's women. It's kind of our I'm primary totally, de- it's your, target demo. Yeah, or secondary demo. BYU parking protected the employee lot. Around yes. BYU broadcasting, which helped. But getting to that lot was a debacle. Yeah. Next time, fly it in. I like coming in and the guy being like, are you faculty or staff? And I said, like a boss. <laughs> <laughs> we were on a conference call, and I heard Jerem say that. Really? Yes. That's And how'd that go over? Next time, I'm going to say, I'm here for women's conference. <laughs> <laughs> I'm speaking. I'm a speaker at women's conference. Because, Jerem, you were a student and you are you you feel like faculty, but you still look young. I feel like faculty. I feel like faculty. You don't know my GPA, did you? Do you? Oh yeah, I heard about <laughs> it. I heard that it was, I'm a master of nothing. Yes, you are. You are the master voice of BYU volleyball, and they're in the final four for heaven's sake. Mix mix master. You're the mix master. Wah, wah. Hey, DJ um, mix master flex. <laughs> Guys, have a great show. I know you will. And that is straight ahead, folks. Four minutes from right now, you can just jump in and eat up these two great brethren. And I hear they're going to be playing volleyball later. Yeah, shirtless. Out in front. And it just so happens to coincide with women's conference. Weird and awkward. Until security comes. Hey, uh, our hero story of the day is a Colorado girl um, who is turning her birthday party into a fundraiser for a four-year-old with cancer. Instead of bringing presents, Logan Wilson is asking people to celebrate her 12th birthday by participating in a family fun run to raise money for a new friend battling a rare cancer. Uh, Wilson told CBS Denver that she was inspired to help Piper Wanaka. Four, after reading the book Choose to Matter by Olympic gold medalist Julie Foudy, Wanaka uh, 
diet was diagnosed last June with diffuse intrinsic pontine glioma, DIPG, a cancerous brain tumor that is only found in children. There is no cure or treatment, but Wanaka uh, remains so positive and uplifting, Wilson said. Other kids Wilson's age heard about the fundraiser and have canceled their own birthday parties and joined the cause. Wilson, Wanaka, and their families recently met at the Denver Museum of Nature and Science and gathered ideas that will make the run as awesome as possible. She's looking forward to the run, which will bring much-needed awareness to DIPG. I hope they just can find a cure and work harder as needed um, to make it better for families who are experiencing this, uh, this horrendous disease. And how cool is that? So she is the hero of the day. Logan Wilson, you did it. You're 12 years old, but you had your heart open up and uh, the compassion and the power that comes when you uh, try to help somebody like Piper Wanaka. Thank you for your heroic efforts. And good luck to you, Piper, as well, for your heroic efforts. That's the show, my friends. We will be back again tomorrow to help you live longer, love stronger, and lead a healthier life. Until then, make it a great one and stick with us because BYU Sports Nation is up next. 